Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. After years of President Trump calling it a deep state, saying the FBI was anti-Trump when it launched an investigation into possible ties between his campaign and Russia, tonight the long-awaited independent report, the Justice Department's Inspector General, revealing there was no evidence of a witch hunt. Determining the FBI had enough evidence pointing to either a federal crime or threat to national security or both to justify the probe at the height of the election and that the agents who made the final decision to launch the investigation were not influenced by political bias. But it was harshly critical of the FBI's court application for permission to conduct surveillance on Carter Page, a former Trump campaign advisor, saying there were serious management failures. The FBI relied heavily on an unverified anti-Trump dossier assembled by Christopher Steele, a former British spy hired by an outside group to conduct research on Trump and Russia. The report says the FBI's court application made statements about Steele that were, quote, inaccurate, incomplete, and unsupported, overselling his value as a source and glossing over the fact that many claims he made were not checking out. The inspector general reached no conclusions about the FBI's motive behind these repeated failures, but said it got no satisfactory explanation about how all these mistakes happened. The report was heavily critical of the FBI, finding fault in the four surveillance warrant applications for Trump campaign aide Carter Page, citing 17 significant inaccuracies and omissions in the warrant requests, including exculpatory evidence favorable to Page. I I think there was a spying did occur. Yes, I think. Attorney General Bill Barr, a staunch defender of the president, took issue with his own inspector general's report, saying it was clear the FBI launched an intrusive investigation on the thinnest of suspicions. The report also criticized the FBI's reliance on Christopher Steele's dossier, used by agents to justify parts of the investigation, saying much of its information was uncorroborated. And welcome back to Flavor Politic Podcast. It is the 11th of December, year of our Lord, 2019. And, of course, the Pfizer report's been released, and that's the media downplaying it, because we must protect Dems. Yeah. This is our political show. Going to do some hate, do some hate tweets, and close this pig out. And for the first time ever, if all goes well, going straight into another podcast, it'll be our... News and social media nugget one, and I might release two podcasts in one day. It could happen. It's supposed to be for Friday, but with the weather the way it is, freezing outside, I'm supposed to clean a dog pen. Really don't feel like it. So I might just sit and podcast all day and do the dog pen tomorrow. So you might have two podcasts to play with or listen to. And I hope that they're entertaining. So let's just get on into it. This is uh, Mediate for the FISA. NBC Pete Williams on Carter Page FISA warrant. IG report found FBI screwed up at every level. <laughs> screwed up. That's how they're doing it. What it says, the FBI basically repeatedly screwed up at every level, failing to pay enough attention to potential problem with steel. And failing to tell the Justice Department, the IG report says FISA application was inaccurate, incomplete, or unsupported. 
It says, for example, the FBI failed to look at some of the problems in Steele's past work, but that was never sufficiently addressed. Dana Loesch sums it up. Corrupt, more accurate than screwed up. They wanted to get Trump. They didn't want him to be president. As much as the media wants to ignore the page text, that, that's the two agents that were running this goat fuck. Fred Freitz goes more succinctly. Although report reportedly will find the FBI did not put agents inside the Trump campaign, it will state the FBI used agents against Trump campaigns, campaign staff. This confirms the FBI did spy on Trump campaign. The IG report also reportedly confirmed that the inaccurate and biased Steele dossier was inappropriately used to justify FISA warrants to monitor the communication of Trump campaign staffers. And the FISA court, which granted these warrants, was not informed about the highly partisan nature of the Steele dossier information that it was paid for by the DNC. The FBI G report also reportedly will fault FBI official Bruce Orr for holding meetings with Christopher Steele about the FBI, cut him off as a source, and did not tell his bosses about these meetings. Remember that Orr brought Steele info into the FBI. And his wife, Nellie, worked for Fusion GPS, the firm hired by the DNC, which compiled the Steele dossier. It's all connected. But you know... Democrats must impeach Trump because of a phone call he made in Ukraine in July this year. They don't have a choice and stuff because they're so concerned with the Constitution and law. Right. Molly Hemingway. Of application for warrants to spy on the U.S. citizen, Carter Page, IG, says numerous instances in which factual representation in those applications were inaccurate, incomplete, or unsupported by appropriate documentation. IG reminds that it did not analyze all the decisions in the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, but had a more limited scope. In fact, IG specifically says, our role in this review is not to second-guess discretionary judgments by the department personnel about whether to open investigations, something spin from media and other sources of IG view of opening investigation neglected to mention. Massive counterintel investigation against political campaign of opposing party was started solely on tip from foreign government, nothing else, IG says. Within days, four campaign officials targeted, picked because they'd been to Russia or talked to Russians. Wow, does this look flimsy. IG says this is technically allowed thanks to low threshold FBI has for counterintelligent investigation. IG says he's concerned about investigation handling given constitutional protected activity occurring during our national presidential campaign. Also concerned about intrusion investigation techniques that could impact constitutionally protected activity. IG says officials all agree that they should launch massive counterintelligent probe on basis of that one uncorroborated tip and not tell campaign, which includes U.S. Senate and future AG Jeff Session and aforementioned Chris Christie, in case they were all in on it. It is perhaps worth noting that public reporting for recent years showed that the U.S. officials did talk to Russia about the alleged efforts, but not the Trump campaign itself. IG reminds that previous report showed highly political texts from FBI DOJ officials that indicated or created the appearance that investigative decisions were impacted by bias or improper consideration. IG previously reported, contrary to some claims recently made in the media, and states again that texts were not only indicative of a biased state of mind, but even more seriously imply a willingness to take official actions to impact Trump's electoral prospects. 
IG notes standards for launching probe of campaign are extremely low, as happens for sprawling Russian probe, given the low threshold for predication, sufficient to predicate the full counterintelligent investigation. It goes on for a long time. I'm not going to read it all. It's like 10 pages. Once again, I don't get upset about this because of Trump. I get upset about this because Democrats used the IRS against conservatives. Democrats used frickin' the FBI to go after a campaign based on nothing. Based on internal polls that they didn't like seeing, which pretty much showed Hillary wasn't electorally electable. And we know this because Hillary's campaign was talking about this in June, uh, fucking May and June of 2016. Because as we know now, they were in Ukraine looking for Trump shit. And then we spend three years saying Trump Russia, Trump Ukraine, and they're going to impeach him for a phone call. When the previous president of the United States not only let Russia meddle in our election, knew about it and did nothing to stop it, but allowed his institutions to go after an opposing party. We as Americans, regardless of what you think of Trump, should think that's pretty fucked up. That's what third world despots do. That's one of the famous media lines that, you know, Trump is a third world despot. He's a horrible fucking man. This is what happens in fucking dictators. He could be a dictator. No, actually, your president was. He went after the opposition. So they had more stuff. Jason Howerton, oh my God, Matt Getz puts up a giant printout of a tweet from nonpartisan Democrat counsel Daniel Goldman talking about the fabled Trump P-tape. As his first report below, lead Dem impeachment prosecutor Dan Goldman not only tweeted against Trump, but also gave more than $40,000 to Democrats of political donations, including to Hillary and Obama, yet he just insisted he conducted a nonpartisan investigation. But in our media, John Harwood, easier to comprehend by recalling. In Barr's life, the share of Americans who are white Christians has fallen by half. He believes militant secularists seek organized destruction of God's eternal law. Putin has made common cause with white nationalism right around the world. This is all after this report released. In an interview with Pete Williams, Attorney General Barr suggests that Obama administration and FBI posted greater threat to American democracy than the Russians. They did. We just read it two, two fucking podcasts ago. Russia did nothing to the election. You either went in liking Trump or hating Trump. You either went in liking Hillary or hating Hillary. A couple bots on Facebook wasn't going to change how you voted. It's all a ruse. Thomas S. Hunter, this is such a far-off, deep-end, hysterical comment that can only imagine John Harward is now envisioning his journalism career swirling the toilet bowl for being such a willing and avid propagizer of the whole Russia story. 
K. Scott, of course, this mindless pundit is from MSNBC. On that basis alone, we should disregard what he says. Somebody else. 2019 journalism. So I'm going to play the bar soundbite, and then I'm going to play Getz, showing that everybody they tooled in front for this impeachment was just a Democratic hack. And Collins, Representative Collins, pretty much breaking out the fact that day one you planned on impeaching him. So it doesn't matter about facts. doesn't matter if he did anything wrong. They just want to impeach him because they're afraid they can't beat him. I think a lot of people will hear what you're saying here and think, well, that's just Bill Barr defending Trump. Your concern about the FBI's investigation is what? Civil libertarian? I think our our nation was turned on its head for three years. I think uh, based on a completely bogus narrative that was largely fanned uh, and hyped by an irresponsible press. Uh, And I think that there were gross abuses uh, of uh, FISA uh, and inexplicable behavior that is intolerable in the uh, FBI. And uh, the Attorney General's primary responsibility is to protect uh, against the abuse of the law enforcement and intelligence apparatus and make sure that it doesn't play an improper role in our, in our political life. That's my responsibility, and I'm going to carry it out. And that brings us to your role, Mr. Goldman. Are you here as a partisan advocate for the Democrat position, or are you here as a nonpartisan investigator of the facts? I'm here to present the report that we did on our investigation, which was totally and completely reliant on the actual evidence that we uncovered, the witness testimony, and the documents. Are you a partisan? I'm not a partisan. Mr. Castro, how long have you worked for the House? Since 2005. And same question, Mr. Colton. For the House? Uh, Since uh, earlier this year. Mr. Castro, do you make political donations? I don't remember any. Uh, Mr. Goldman, same question. Do you make political donations? I do, sir. I think it's very important. Matter of fact, you've, support, you've um, given tens of thousands of dollars to Democrats, right? Sir, I, I think it's very important to support candidates for office. I think our have you given general, over a hundred thousand? Do you mind Demo- if I, I just want to know the number? I don't really care the basis. Have you given more than a hundred thousand dollars to Democrats? You don't care about it. The basis. I just want the number. So it's tens. Of, I, I think, Mr. Burke. Do you know how much money Mr. Burke has given Democrats? I don't know, and I don't. Would it surprise you if it's more than a hundred thousand? Mr. Gates, I'm here to talk about this report. So, so you gave tens of thousands, to to and Mr. Burke gave hundreds of, or more than 100,000. Do you think if you'd given more money, you might have been able to ask questions and answer them like Mr. Burke did? <laughs> I guess it's something you're still pondering. This impeachment process demonstrates the worst in us, and it is depriving us the opportunity to raise our gaze and meet the needs of the American people. Unless you have bipartisan consensus, impeachment is a divisive issue in the country. Many people would think it's being done for political reasons. Nancy Pelosi, May 2018. And here we are in the most partisan presidential impeachment in American history. Matter of fact, when we opened the inquiry, no Republicans voted with the Democrats. And you even had Democrats vote with us in the only bipartisan vote to shut down this impeachment. And that brings us to your role, Mr. Goldman. Are you here as a partisan advocate for the Democrat position, or are you here as a nonpartisan investigator of the facts? I'm here to present the report that we did on our investigation, 
which was totally and completely reliant on the actual evidence that we uncovered, the witness testimony, and the documents. Are you a partisan? I am not a partisan. Mr. Castro, how long have you worked for the House? Since 2005. And same question, Mr. Golden. For the House? Uh, since uh, earlier this year. Mr. Castro, do you make political donations? I don't remember any. Uh, Mr. Goldman, same question. Do you make political donations? I do, sir. I think it's very important. Matter of fact, you've, for, you've um, given tens of thousands of dollars to Democrats, right? Sir, I, I think it's very important to support candidates for office. I think our Have you given general, over 100,000? Do you mind if I, I just want to know the number. I don't really care the basis. Have you given more than 100,000 dollars to Democrats? You don't care about it? The basis. I just want the number. So it's tens of I, I think I Mr. Burke, number, do you know how much money Mr. Burke has given Democrats? I, I don't know, and I Would don't Would it surprise you if it's more than 100,000? Mr. Gates, I'm here to talk about this report. So, so you gave tens of thousands, to to Mr. Burke gave report. hundreds of, or more than 100,000. Do you think if you'd given more money, you might have been able to ask questions and answer them like Mr. Burke did? <laughs> I guess it's something you're still pondering. Uh, Mr. Castor, have you ever tweeted anything at the president? No. Mr. Goldman, same question. Um, I have made a number of tweets in my private capacity before I came to this job when I was working in the media, yes. Matter of fact, this is one of those tweets, right? And you said, nothing in the dossier is proven false, but in fact the dossier said that there was a Russian consulate in Miami when there isn't. The dossier said that Michael Pro Cohen had a meeting in Prague when he didn't. The dossier said that Michael Cohen's wife was Russian. She's, in fact, Ukrainian. And so, as we sit here today, where you, I guess, got a tweet mentioning a P-tape, presenting yourself not as a partisan, hired by the Democrats to pursue the president, do you regret this tweet? Sir, I would be happy to put my, this investigation up with any of the nonpartisan investigations. I just want to know if you regret the tweet, Mr. Goldman. During my 10 years as a federal prosecutor. Do you regret it? I hope you read the evidence, and I think you can judge You either regret it or you don't regret it, Mr. Goldman. I guess you don't want to answer the question. You know what, Mr. Chairman? Earlier in this hearing. Well, what was the opportunity? The opportunity came last November when they got the majority and they began their impeachment run. They began in the process, even uh, as selecting the chairman, the chairman said that I would be the best person for impeachment. This is November of last year. Before we had any hearings, before we had even were sworn in to this Congress, for anyone, the media or watching on TV or watching in this room, for anyone to think that this was not a baked deal is not being honest with themselves. See, under the guise that the media lets them run with, we're protecting the Constitution. Democrats went to Ukraine and looked for dirt for Trump, then said Trump stole an election because he said jokingly in a speech, hey, Russia, if you got those 30,000 emails, can you send them to me? So much that back in the day, I made this skit. This is Jake Tapper, and welcome to State of the Union. CNN has obtained new information from high-level anonymous sources that there is more evidence showing the collusion between Russia 
and the Trump campaign, which allowed him to beat our candidate, the only true candidate, the only candidate that an American can make, Madam Secretary Hillary Rodham Clinton. Praise be her name, praise be her pantsuits, praise be her cackle. <laughs> High-level sources with the CIA, FBI, DIA, NSC, Keith Oberman, Bill Maher, Michael Moore, and more importantly, Meryl Streep have all verified this information, and we have high confidence that this will verify what Democrats have been speaking on since November 8th. That is, a Watergate, Iran-Contra, Lewinsky-Gate, and earth-shattering information that will bring Donald Trump, hashtag resist, administration to his knees, and make anyone with any loyalty and patriotism to this country, anyone who loves puppies, babies, kitties, and oxygen itself to stop supporting him and demand nothing less than his resignation, but hopefully impeachment, so he can begin to work on taking Vice President Pence down with his anti-abortion, anti-LGBTQ cosinophor background, and even worse, in Jesus as his savior. Ugh. Which is seriously a character flaw. This source has delivered to us what we have been searching for since the election didn't go our way. For this information, we go to our Washington correspondent, Jim Acosta, who has been insulted and made fun of by that meanie President Donald J. Trump, hashtag resist, and now has to go to his safe space to report for his feelings were deeply hurt when he didn't get to go to one press spray. Out of character for a second. That sounds super homoerotic and should be nothing anyone ever would want to go to, by the way. So, here is Jim Acosta in his safe space in an undetermined location, but surrounded by the very puppies and kitties that the Trump care plan will kill if signed. And he has this piece of the puzzle we have struggled for three months to find. Yes, Jake! This information, once again, high-level anonymous sources have confirmed exclusively to CNN that during the campaign, no less than three, three times, Donald J. Trump, hashtag resist, used Russian dressing on his salad. That's right, Jake. He used Russian dressing on his salad, and not the kind made by Kraft, or a generic one you can get at Piggly Wiggly. This was Russian dressing made in Russia that was imported especially for Donald J. Trump, hashtag resist, and the Trump campaign, hashtag resist. And it was made out of the 30,000 emails that Hillary Clinton deleted, which as you know, Jake, Donald J. Trump, hashtag resist, said during the campaign he hoped the Russians would give him those emails and they did in this imported bottle of Russian dressing. This is the smoking gun in this low point for America. And now this reporter believes the only action Republicans can do is to start impeachment proceedings. Jim Acosta in his safe space surrounded by puppies and kitties. Thanks, Jim. 
For the visually impaired, the Chiron on CNN now reads, Trump used Russian dressing made from Hillary Clinton's deleted emails. Hashtag resist. So to our panel with this new information that Donald Trump used Hillary Clinton's deleted email, Russian dressing, how does this affect his ability to govern as a president? Van Jones? I am. I am shocked by this news. I I think we have to ask the question, what do we tell our children in the morning? I mean, people are scared out there. I have friends that are allergic to Russian dressing, and especially dressing made out of Hillary Clinton's deleted emails. But let's just speak on the elephant in the room. This was a reddish-orange wash. This was a racist president who is eating reddish-orange dressing, and that sends a powerful signal to African-Americans. Dana Bash? I am speechless, really. I mean, it is definitive proof that this election was hijacked. My sources on the Hill are saying that the GOP is talking about the DNC hijacking the election from Bernie Sanders, but we have not verified any of that, so I really can't speak on that, but it is just spin, spin, spin. David Axelrod? As a hack from the Obama administration who spinned my president to an eight-year presidency that is scandal-free in the media's eyes, I mean, really on the eve of an election, I pushed that sorry YouTube video bullshit. You guys bought that and protected the president. I mean, that really was my greatest hour. (laughs) But seriously, I could only say that Trump administration is over now. Russian dressing is a proof that we were looking for, and it's time for the GOP to be like we were the DNC that is with Bill Clinton and convict him of high crimes and misdemeanors uh, David the to keep the facts straight the Democrats didn't convict him of high crimes and misdemeanor they stopped that in the Senate well um, what I mean is the GOP is only one political option on this and that is to impeach if not they will suffer a landslide defeat in the midterms if this in itself doesn't devastate them. And the Democrats really are poised to take back power in every office in the land due to this Russian dressing discovery. To our only conservative on the panel, but a never-Trumper who you have never heard of, John Doe. John Doe, in in my opinion, which you don't care about at all, um, I, I I truly think um, I want to state for the record I'm not you know I, I'm not a Trump supporter hashtag resist so I, I do not get attacked I, I don't want to get attacked on Twitter okay I I, I have my family's lives threatened and it, it's been really bad because I, I'm the only one on this channel that's actually not uh, part of the resistance and, and it's been really hard but but I can only say this is why we said. He should not be the candidate. This is why we wanted Ted Cruz, you know. Someone you all hated just as much, but Ted Cruz doesn't eat Russian dressing. That didn't collude to rig this election and take it away from its rightful owner that you've all told me is the rightful owner. Madam Secretary Hillary Rodham Clinton, you know, uh, blessed be her name, blessed be her pantsuits. Van Jones? I totally disagree with you. On this one, just because I have to, for you are evil and are guilty by association for being a Republican. 
David Axelrod. I am sure that reads good on paper, but politically you should not have said Ted Cruz. Well, Ted Cruz is a Christian, and the American people by a huge percentage are not Christians. So that statement is not going to get you and your family any safety at all. When we come back, we will speak to a Russian dressing maker from Kraft Foods to see how the Russians could have made this dressing out of the 30,000 deleted emails when those emails are just a figment of the GOP's imagination. And we never really even researched it, so we don't think it was ever, ever deleted. None of them were ever deleted at all. It's just a ruse by the GOP to take away the presidency from the real president, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Praise be her name. Praise be her pantsuit. Praise be her cackle. That's how absurd it all was. Rushing dress. There was literally an article written during the time I did this skit right after it about how he likes Russian dressing by WAPO and how that could be a sign that he's a Russian stooge. And we've gone through in our year and we're going to go through all the times they said Russia, smoking gun, impeachment pushed by the media. But it's all under the guise We're defending the Constitution. Schiff obtained journalist John Solomon's phone records and nobody in the media seems to care. Obama went after a Fox reporter. Nobody cared then. Trump kicked somebody off a goddamn press briefing. They go to the Supreme Court to get injunctions. Husband of Democrat and you impeachment hearing took 700k from Fern's time to Ukrainian oligarchs accused of ordering contract killings. Yeah. But regardless, they're filing it. They're going to do two articles. They're now saying um, he... Two articles of impeachment will focus on abuse of power and obstructing Congress. Mark Simon, Democrats announced articles of impeachment. They said the president is a clear danger to America, and Friday they're going on vacation for a month. John Pollock, shorter article of impeachment is summarized by Scott Adams. Trump asked Ukraine to investigate corruption that Democrats agreed was worth investigating. Trump asked the courts to do what the Constitution tells them to do. Democrats in Congress just jumped the shark with the pathetic articles of impeachment. The dynamic, Democrats, so much charisma and intelligence on display. Thank you for helping ensuring real Donald Trump wins re-election. There was no bribery, no extortion, no quid pro quo, no high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, Trump will be totally exonerated in the Senate. Uh, impeachment backfire was vehemently never Trump in primaries and have TL to prove it. My excitement when he was elected was only that Hillary would never be POTUS. Not only am I supporting him in 2020, I'm going to campaign for him or recruit as many as I can. Terrence K. Williams. They don't want to impeach him because they can't beat him. The articles of impeachment is really the articles of BS from Democrats. This will be an impeachment backfire. We will support him even more now. I'm voting for Trump in 2020, my friends. I don't even want Trump to be president anymore. But this impeachment, you went on quid pro quo. That didn't work. Didn't poll well. You then went into fucking um, bribery. Couldn't prove that. Everybody you brought in front of there was a Democrat stooge. 
you don't give a fuck about the Constitution. The only time progressives care about the Constitution is when they're trying to finagle maps or some other minority group that they want to make up to try to cobble enough people to vote for them and fear the rest of them into saying, oh, they're going to hurt those little people over there or whatever the fuck they, they're spouting this week. You take the 14th Amendment and shoehorn it, something that was for actually African Americans, you made for gays, transgenders, they're trying to do it for minor attracted people, for Christ's sake, you don't care about them. You don't care about the Constitution. You had a constitutional fucking professor, president, who wiped his ass on the Constitution. He didn't give a fuck. He did whatever the fuck he wanted. DACA, Affordable Care Act. Once again, IRS. I go back to the IRS, my friends, because that's all you need to know about Democrats. I'm not saying Republicans are better. They abuse power, too, when they have total power. I'm just saying that's all you need to know about this Democratic Party right now. If they use the IRS... to stop groups from being able to stop their president from getting elected, why do you think they wouldn't send people to Ukraine? Why would you think they wouldn't, as we've seen, come up with a fake Russia story to stop a president? But out, right out the gate, the media's all for it. They don't give a fuck. So we'll listen to this. Articles of impeachment bumper, and we'll talk more about it next week when more breaks out, because they'll have the vote next week. He will be impeached just to get it on record that he was impeached. It'll be just like the Republicans. It'll just be in the House because there's no high crimes and misdemeanors. Unlike Clinton, who literally lied under oath and said he did not have relations with a woman, and then he admitted he did, once again, that is high crime. He perjured himself. This is just a fucking stretch, my friends. So we'll play the soundbite and we'll go into hate. Led by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, she was reluctant to pursue impeachment during the Mueller investigation and after the Mueller report. But in the wake of of the reports on this Ukraine phone call, she did come forward. And and Terry Moran, who's up there on Capitol Hill, was inside the Rayburn room. Nancy Pelosi didn't say much this morning, but no question she wanted to be there to show that she is driving and in charge of this process. In charge of the process and, and the tone of the process. She wants this to be not typical partisan politics. She knows the Democrats, some members, have been eager to impeach this president from the moment he got into office. One of the challenges for Democrats is to persuade people this is the real deal. This time it's different. And one of the ways you can tell she is insistent that it is a solemn process, that it is constitutional, and that it is a duty that Democrats are doing, not a weapon in their partisan war. So they lay out the rationale, they lay out the evidence, and they make the case constitutional. We saw the speaker, first sentence out of her mouth goes straight to the Constitution. The Democrats want to explain to the American people now, this is what the founders envisioned when they were talking about impeachable offenses. I mean, she was the proponent of originalism this morning. This is exactly what the framers contemplated. Adam Schiff reiterated that. The framers contemplated the idea that there would be a president at some point in history whose ambitions would exceed the oath of office and would go beyond what the oath of office required. And there had to be a congressional remedy to check that. And that remedy was impeachment. This is not political. This is not a witch hunt. This is their solemn duty. 
Um, we, why do you would you why do you think that uh, the Democrats have backed away from a word that they used quite prominently not so long ago, bribery and also right. extortion? Uh, what's the reasoning behind that? Well, they clearly don't believe they have the evidence to make that case stick. Bribery, extortion, those were words that had great power and force just about a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, absent from this docket, if you will, of impeachment articles. And there's also something else conspicuously missing, obstruction of justice. As Gail noted, that's what we're typically accustomed to hearing from when Congress decides whether or not a president has done something so bad that it must impeach the president. Obstructing justice has been part and parcel of both the Clinton and Nixon impeachment procedures. Not so this time. Why? Because House Democrats have, by any historical measure, accelerated this impeachment process. So they have not gone through what other impeachment processes have. Court challenges over disputed access to documents and or witnesses. If a White House defies a court order to comply with the congressional subpoena, then you can propound an article of obstruction of justice. But Democrats don't want to wait for those court procedures. In some cases, haven't even engaged them to test this question in court. So they're left with obstruction of Congress, which is a smaller sounding and in the history of impeachment, less enforceable or less, let's say, strident accusation against the White House. In both cases, House Democrats are in full public view walking back away from some of the things they were alleging quite loudly just two weeks ago. Bullies don't win. And I said, baby, they don't. Because we're going to go in there, we're going to impeach them Talking about women's reproductive rights when you've got a dick. No, I've had two abortions. Realize the biggest terror threat in this country is white men, most of them radicalized right up to the right. All punches are not equal morally. Well, say what you will, but it's no more Sleepy Joe, Donald. <laughs> How do you think he handled that situation? I loved it. Yeah. I really did. Yeah. Look, I, you know, I, I've known Joe Biden for a long time, and this is Joe Biden. Yeah. And he is scrapping Joe Biden from Scranton. He's going to need to be able to do this. And the truth is, I'm glad he's getting uh, some practice calling out damn lies, because if he wins the, general, the primary, he's going to be running against a damn liar. That's yeah. for sure. it as well. I mean, I think any parent uh, that's out there knows what was going on because, I, you know, I'm known as being very measured as a person and on this show, but you talk about my kids and you're going to get the wrath of Khan. I mean, that, that's just what that, it's that's about. That's how I saw it, too, that's because what it's it triggers about. a parent. It does. It yeah. triggers you. You yeah. know, don't talk about my kid. You can talk about me. Don't talk about my kid. Fighting words, Joe Biden faces off with a voter. A damn liar, man. Get your words straight, Jack. What that man said that made the former vice president so mad. And more news from the campaign trail as things got pretty hot in Iowa. Democratic frontrunner Joe Biden went at it with a voter who accused him of sending his son Hunter to work for a Ukrainian energy company for the family's benefit. Will the vice president even challenge the man to a push-up contest? Ed O'Keefe tonight with the blow-by-blow. Wait a minute. I got I got a question I want you to answer. 
Pacing the floor like a prize fighter, Joe Biden punched back when challenged on how his son Hunter landed a lucrative position in Ukraine. You're a damn liar, man. That's not true. And no one has ever said that. No one has proved that. No. You see it on the TV. Hunter Biden joined the board of Burisma in April 2014, around the time his father was pressing the Ukrainian government to fight corruption. We want Biden. President Trump has spread disproven accusations of wrongdoing against them and his concerns with what the Biden's were doing is at the heart of the impeachment inquiry. You said I set up my son to work in an oil company. Isn't that what you said? I Get your word straight, Jack. That's what I re- re- hear on the on MSNBC. All of you it. don't hear that in MSNBC. Yeah, well, I didn't. Look, fat, look. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. It, lo- it looks. It looks like you don't have any more backbone than Trump does when you're you're selling you're selling. Uh, also today in Iowa, tough talk from New Jersey Senator Cory. my son to work in an oil company. Isn't that what you said? Get your word straight, Jack. That's what I hear on MSNBC. You don't hear that on MSNBC. You did not hear that at all. What you heard? Look, okay, I'm not going to get an argument you, man. Well, yeah, you do, but, uh, but look, fat, look, here's the deal. Here's the deal. You better get your straight facts straight there, Jack. You're a liar. I'll do. I'll do a push-up competition with you. You know, really, what I heard and the media loved it because they know he's their only hope. They know Warren cannot win because she is not what America wants. She's a liar. She's been lying over and over and over. 
And they know she can't win. They know Bernie can't win because they know he's a socialist. So that's not going to fly. But when the media went all crazy about this, I just started laughing because it's expected. Because once again, the media is always for the Democrat. Whatever Democrat can win, it doesn't matter what they do. I mean, he does have a son working in Ukraine. It is some sketchy fucking shit. They will defend it. But when he went into his little screed, I heard this. Did somebody take your keys? Can I finish the story? <laughs> Turns out that I had accidentally taken Jeff Peabody's keys and he had taken mine. We, we really had a long laugh. Mm, I thought that's who took them. Will you ever let me finish a damn story? I, I just assume that Jeff I would love to finish it. one damn story. Your stories are lame, Dad. You don't talk to me like that. Shut you up. don't talk to me I like that. I am a division manager. That is very important. Do not raise very your voice important. Me or you don't parent. talk to Do me like that. Dad? People Do are you? scared of me. Why would anyone be scared of you? I hate you, you big fat turd. <laughs> And then he goes on to say, I can do 10 push-ups, and I drive a Dodge Stratus. Important, big stuff, big stuff. It wouldn't let me download it. Uh, they've done something to YouTube on uh, uh, SNL. My downloader doesn't work anymore. But that, that's what I heard. Will Ferrell's SNL skit back when SNL was funny. And, once again, Biden. That's who you want to be president of the United States. Really. Okay, media. You go. Then we had our Pelosi. On the last podcast, we pushed out uh, her claiming to be a Catholic all of a sudden. Even though she's for abortion until college. She was pushing her Catholic cred. Well, you knew the media was going to literally go crazy. So I have two cuts for this. The first one... Andrea Mitchell, you know she's going to do it. Mojo, you know that's going to happen around it, right? Um, This is this this is just expected. Well, there was quite a moment with Nancy Pelosi yesterday when a reporter from Sinclair asked her whether she was doing this because she hates the president, parroting what Doug Collins had said earlier on Fox News. Uh, the ranking Republican, of course, on judiciary. And she was really, um, I mean, very much taken aback by that, offended, making the point that, to her mind, all of her disagreements with the president on policy, whether it's on DACA, separation of children, that those gun gun laws, those are issues for the electorate. That should be policies to be determined in the following November, but that this is a matter of the Constitution and that she as a person of, faith, of deep faith, which we know to be the, the case with her, uh, really took offense at anyone questioning. A lot of people don't understand the role that Catholic faith plays in Nancy Pelosi's life. I do, and many of us in the Democratic caucus do, but uh, I understood where she was coming from. Yeah, I can attest to that just from knowing her uh, off-camera over the years and decades, in fact. Uh, that that was just a moment, and it was a moment that that really affected a lot of people. So don't mess with me when it comes to words like that. Wow! Don't don't mess with me. One of the many iconic Nancy Pelosi moments 
uh, from this period. You know, um, it, 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 it wasn't that long ago when there was a rebellion of some Democrats in the House of Representatives um, to try to get a new Speaker of the House. I mean, she has so commanded this process and so much taken charge and so much become even more beloved by Democrats. The idea that there would be any rebellion against her at this point is pretty laughable. Absolutely. I loved it. I thought that was Nancy Pelosi at her truest and at her best. She is a devout Catholic. She's angry. She's angry with the cheap shot question. But but it's really important for those of us who really um, can't stand the idea of a Trump presidency <laughs> that we not fall into that. And she is not motivated by it. the most powerful opponent Donald Trump has in this country. And the biggest threat to his future is a woman. And the speaker has made it clear that she is fully in charge. But as if on cue, the right felt the need to be heard. Do you hate the president, Madam Speaker? Because I don't, I don't hate anybody. Representative Collins, you don't hate anybody. Not anybody in the world. This is about the Constitution of the United States and the facts that lead to the president's violation of his oath of office. And as a Catholic, I resent your using the word hate in a sentence that addresses me. I don't hate anyone. Okay, well, apparently that man forgot the rule. If you're going to come for Speaker Pelosi, you might want to ask yourself three questions first. Question one, did she call for you? If the answer is yes, please do come forward. If the answer is no, perhaps not such a good idea unless you're prepared to be fully gathered. And the man who saw that the man who you saw there getting bewigged Catholic school alumnus style by the speaker happened to be Sinclair Broadcasting's James Rosen. So Republicans with no defense for Donald Trump for attempting to use your tax dollars to bribe a foreign country into announcing investigations that would give Sinclair and Fox News, OAN and the rest of the Trump inverse juicy content to use against Joe Biden if he happens to be the Democratic nominee and that would get Russia and Trump off the hook for cheating in 2016, have stooped to whining. The Democrats are only impeaching Trump because they're mean, all but inviting the speaker to put them in timeout. When someone says something untoward, when someone really pushes her in a direction that she finds to be wrong or insulting, she goes right to her Catholic roots and lets yeah. them guide her. And as a Catholic, I resent your using the word hate in a sentence that addresses me. I don't hate anyone. I was raised in a way that is full, a heart full of love and always prayed for the president. And I still pray for the president. I pray for the president all the time. So don't mess with me when it comes to words like that. God, I love her. What she talks about, and it's always very moving, she talks about her faith. Nancy Pelosi talks about her faith a lot. Again, when no cameras are on. And she talks about, she's, you know. You don't have to look very far. I remember asking her about her father. What would your father think? She goes, well, I believe actually, you know, my father's watching over me every day. And so is my mom. I'm, I'm a Catholic. I have... I have faith, and, and, and they guide me, and my faith guides me. Again, behind closed doors. This is a woman who is. She's moved by faith. And, by the way, her faith does not allow her to do what so many Republicans' faith allows them to do. Turn a blind eye to little children dying in U.S. custody. Turn a blind eye to little children being locked up in cages, ripping babies 
from mothers. I wonder if maybe James Rosen would like to ask Donald Trump, do you hate children? Mm-hmm. Or do you hate Jesus? That's a good question. Do you not believe in the teachings of Jesus Christ? Let the little children come. Yeah. Speaker Pelosi is the only American politician with whom I've had endless discussions about St. Augustine. It seems to me that Nancy Pelosi is doing a lot more than serving as Speaker of the House. She's filling a void, a leadership void, and a moral void in this country. What is happening on our border to these children is the antithesis of everything that Jesus taught. And yet, we have to depend on a liberal from San Francisco instead of evangelicals? Well, because the the interesting part why? of it would just you saw and heard Nancy Pelosi, not an ideologue, but a woman of great compassion. And- so you expect Andrea Mitchell to say, "I know Nancy Nancy Pelosi, Pelosi's um, Catholicism. She's a very religious person. I knew these things because she's a feminazi." But when CBS and NBC do it, and Brooks, Tapper, man, that's just, that's just not right. No choice but to act. The Speaker of the House declares there will be articles of impeachment before angrily warning a reporter. Don't mess with me when it comes to words like that. Tonight, the question that set the Speaker off. You just don't like the guy. One reporter asked Pelosi about that as she left the podium today. Do you hate the president, Madam Speaker? I don't, I don't hate anybody. I don't have was raised in the Catholic House. You don't hate anybody, not anybody in the world. The speaker stormed back to the microphone. I pray for the president all the time. So don't mess with me when it comes to words like that. The president quickly accused Pelosi of having a nervous fit. The historic move by Speaker Nancy Pelosi ordering articles of impeachment drawn up against President Trump. And the heated moment, a reporter asking Pelosi, do you hate the president? So don't mess with me when it comes to words like that. The president daring Democrats to impeach him fast. Could it happen by Christmas? History unfolding tonight as Democrats take a dramatic and material step toward impeaching President Trump. With the president even today clinging to his mantra that it's all a hoax, a deadly serious House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was directing House leaders to start drafting articles of impeachment. Peter Alexander has late details. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi tonight wielding the power of her office in an effort to remove the president from his. Also bristling at a question today, Speaker Pelosi, as she was leaving a news conference, asked by a reporter whether she hates the president. I don't, I don't hate anybody. Representative Collins, the reason I asked you don't hate anybody. I pray for the president all the time. So don't mess with me when it comes to words like that. I should say I thought Nancy Pelosi had one of the best political moments of the year this week in saying that she doesn't hate Donald Trump. She's going to pray for Donald Trump. Right. Um, that was, a, I just thought, a beautiful moment of, of well, she said, she said it's her Catholic faith of Christian witness. So I hear that. David, go David, ahead. David is a devotee of St. Augustine, and she was quoting, of course, St. Saint Augustine would, you know, hate the sin, but don't but hate not, the sinner, love not the, the sinner. Not the sinner. Yeah.
I do want to ask you, though, there was an intense moment this morning when you uh, spoke to reporters. A reporter asked you if you uh, hated President Trump, if that was the motivation uh, for impeachment. You said you don't hate anybody. And you also said, don't mess with me when it comes to words like that, the word hate. Can you can you share why that seemed to elicit such a strong response from you? Was that a reporter? Is that uh, what reporters do? He's, Is that he, what reporters do? Well, I'm In not going to comment event. on that, but it was a reporter with uh, Sinclair News. Yes, yeah, Sinclair. Is that a news story? Uh, the, um, I was raised a Catholic. My college roommate, Rita Meyer, and my college classmate, Mary uh, Beta, are here with me. We, we were raised... And my dear husband, Paul, and Danny, our friend, Susan, we were raised in, in a Catholic faith, and the word hate a person was just, that just didn't happen. You know, the word hate is a terrible word, but you might reserve it for vanilla ice cream or something like that, but not, I'm a chocoholic, but not for a person. And it is, um, so for him to say that was really disgusting to me. And, of course, he was quoting somebody else. Congressman Collins, Republican on the else. judiciary. But I, I, I think that it's a technique, a tactic. There's two things you can always expect out of our media. Number one, when a Republican talks about his religion or his faith, they're going to find reasons and ways to poke holes in that faith. Well, they don't care about people on food stamps. Mm. They don't care about black people. But when a Democrat talks about their faith, well, they must defend that faith. And if you dare say it, that they are not faithful people, well, you're a bigot, you're a sexist, you're that. Nancy Pelosi is about as much of a Catholic as I am a Christian. I may believe, but I'm not a great Christian. You're not going to go, hey, look at that God-fearing man, Tony Reed over there. You're just not going to do it. I curse like a fucking sailor. I smoke fucking stogies, dip, fucking drink. Yeah, I'm not a perfect person. But I wouldn't go up there and say, uh, hate is such a strong word. You need to watch your words with me. I'm a Catholic. I would never say that. Because the first part of fucking being any type of religious person is thou shalt not lie, Nancy Pelosi. And you lied. So, we're going to go into a music break. And we're going to come back in on a super cut that was made this week of CNN again. With the impeachment. And as it should be the progressive, just full moon, the perfect apex of the stars Trump is going to be impeached in the house their ratings are tumbling just tumbling so for today's music we're going to play the Hooters I heard this on a rerun of the Goldbergs this was a good song
Welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast with Tony Reed. It's why they call me. Good afternoon, and with that gavel coming down, I'm Jake Tapper in Washington, and you're watching special coverage of this historic day. This is a historic day here in the nation's capital. It will be a busy and historic day ahead. You're watching CNN's special live coverage of what can only be described as an historic day. This is turning out to be a historic day, a very important day. Another very, very important and historic day, a very historic and important day. Another historic day here in Washington. Historic day here in the nation's capital. Chris, this is going to be another historic day here in Washington. At the end of a long and certainly historic day. A truly historic day. It was a historic day on Capitol Hill. A historic day with millions watching. A historic day. Historic day on this historic day. We're just getting started on this important historic day. All right, it is a historic day on Capitol Hill. Who do you think's more excited, CNN or the Democrats or the resistance? I mean, what's the difference? It's all the same. You're right. CNN's rating plummet to lowest primetime viewership in almost three years. Hate fest fail. CNN rating plunged to three-year low. Covering then-Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump drove CNN's ratings to an all-time high. Hating on Trump day after day has driven the liberal network's ratings to a three-year low. CNN fell to number 18 in primetime the past week. Ad Week reported. Not a conservative website. The network aired a lot of special reruns and gave some of its primetime hosts multiple days off. Nevertheless, a drop is a drop, and CNN had its lowest rate rated week in five years among adults 25 to 54, and its lowest rated week in primetime in three years. Total viewers, Fox News, 1.3 million. Hallmark, 1.15. ESPN, under a million. MSNBC, 781. Nickelodeon, 686. Home and Garden, 598, ID Discovery, 569, CNN barely beat Lifetime with 539,000. That's right, Hallmark has twice as many viewers as CNN, though to be fair, it is a Christmas special season. And the rating plunge has nothing to do with Thanksgiving. Fox increased viewers year on year. That's all CNN did. It's all MSNBC do. Bash Trump. They make no pretense of covering any other news unless it's somehow to tag the effort to get Trump. While CNN's ratings have collapsed to a three-year low during the week of November 25th, a three-year low while what was going on, while the Democrats were Mueller and investigating Donald Trump, it's true. I'm not going to read the rest of the article, but it's just true. This should be your prime time. But it's not. Because even resistance people are like, oh, God, you guys fucking suck. So here is some evidence, because you know I love bashing CNN. Our fake news, we are not fake news, Acosta, yelling all the time. But they are literally saying that that's why Pelosi was upset. And then, of course... Harris failed because America is a sexist bunch of fucking troglodytes.
Speaker Pelosi. So three things just to kind of explain what just happened. Yeah. And, and Phil did a great job on one of the things, which is that the core of the the substance of what James Rosen, that reporter, was asking was about uh, the Republican mantra yes. that this is just about re- Democrats uh, being sore losers after the 2016 election wanting to do this and since, wanting to do yeah. this since day one. So that's number one. Number two, uh, it is it was the word hate that set her off uh, because it feeds into th- that idea. But also it's a personal thing for her. Uh, when she said, don't mess with me, she said, don't mess with me when it comes to the words yes, that did. you use or you that you ascribe to me. And third, you know, not to get too far behind the curtain, but why not? James Rosen used to work for Fox News. He has been somebody who has asked her questions that have really ticked her off before. Mm-hmm. And so that is a history that, uh, that, that can't be overlooked. But wow. But it's really notable. I, for, I'm so glad you're here, Dana, because yeah. when you're in the room, it, these, this is her weekly press conference. She holds this every week. There is a formality to it. There is a tradition to, there, there is a way that she runs it and how it, how it always goes. She, if you shout out a question, she's basically not going to call on you. Mm-hmm. She, when she takes last question, she is, she means it and she walks off. Mm-hmm. The only time I've ever thought that she has stopped to take a question after she'd walked from the podium, if it was something funny about uh, a sporting event mm-hmm. or some kind of like, bet mm-hmm. that she made with a, a fellow lawmaker. Yeah. This was very different. And I think it, it, it speaks to the enormity of the moment. It, I really it, do. It absolutely does. She, um, she, doesn't, she doesn't lose it. And I'm not saying that she lost it there. She, she did that for a reason. Yeah, yeah, she yeah. wanted to be stern. Uh, again, the fact that that particular reporter asked the question is no it's, question. It, there's no, that's why, that's why she re- reacted like she was dropping out, um, mm-hmm. giving the polls, as, given the polls, it's not shocking, but she needed a lot of money, 20,000 people at her rally when she first started. Um, but failed, she failed to get the support that she needed. Remember when she came out with the 20,000 people, what yeah. happened? Well, she got pummeled by, you know, uh, sexism. I mean, the coverage on her is pretty tough. Um, and it's a double, maybe triple standard, as Angela Rye uh, tweeted not long ago, and I love that. We're going to have an implosion <clears throat> come time, uh, come to the end of this primary, if this party does not figure out a system that works to account for the big tent that it says it serves. Because what is happening right now is a white debate stage, just a week and a half from now, mm-hmm. and rich people who Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren regularly talk about the millionaires and the billionaires. There's about to be two of them on the stage, perhaps. That, that, look, it's up on the screen. It's now. Snow That's White. It. That, yeah, so the, and I'm not talking about the fairy tale, right? I'm talking no about No people of color like. have made the cut. And then, of course, we have the Russia, Russia, Russia. FBI didn't do anything wrong. And this is Wolf Blitzer and Cooper. I want you to literally listen, folks. These are Democratic talking points. This is exactly what Democrats are saying. In fact, Coopers are directly out of Comey's mouth. It said in his farewell address, President George Washington, and this seems to answer sort of what you were saying there, Pamela, warned of a moment when, quote, cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be able to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. I mean, Brianna, this is a huge moment for America. And I've been saying this for weeks. It's about who we're going to be in this moment and who we're going to be going for. Now, I realize that... 
politically, the president plays to his base. And we know that we're really living in two Americas right now, because if you turn on another network versus this network or another network, you hear entirely different set of facts, narratives. It's kind of scary because if you don't know, you don't know who to believe at this point. And I think what's dangerous is that the Republican Party, Lincoln's Party, has now adopted a position that says it's okay to subvert democracy. It's okay to gloss this over. It's okay not to honor checks and balances. Is that really the hill they want to die on? How embarrassing is it for him? How much does this undermine not only his ability to conduct foreign policy, but America's credibility? And it's, it's not just shameful in terms of the way it plays out among us. It is, it has repercussions for our ability not just during the Trump presidency, but I think down the road. Do you think, Robin, that that's too distant in the history of the country for a lot of Americans to say, oh, yeah, that really matters. That's very important to me personally, to the health of the country, to have this cohesion, to have these alliances. Do you think that's something that really, I mean, I think people obviously who are steeped in foreign policy, they understand just how important that is. But I wonder if there's a lot of Americans who that's not something. We heard a very, very powerful statement from Daniel Goldman, the majority counsel for the House of Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, making the case that the president of the United States uh, uh, abused his power and uh, should be impeached. An extremely dense and fact based uh, summary of the evidence that the Intelligence Committee heard. I'd just like to make one observation about this. I know it's it's a lot to absorb. But one point that I thought um, Daniel Goldman made very well was that the president didn't want an investigation of the uh, Hunter Biden's role in Ukraine. He wanted the announcement of an investigation. I was, I was just going to say that for, for, for viewers and others wondering, why do we care so much about Ukraine? Uh, there is a, a very important a series of important reasons, and Dr. Hill has mentioned them, Ambassador Taylor. But let's not just talk about Ukraine. If Donald Trump did this with regard to Ukraine, how many other foreign policy issues is he managing in the same way? What do we know from the way he managed Ukraine, from all the testimony? He never really learned his brief. He doesn't know much about the issues. The only reason he cared about this country was how it would assist him in 2020. Imagine if that's how he's dealing with Turkey. Imagine if that's how he's dealing with Russia. Imagine if that's how he's dealing with Israel. Imagine if, if that's how he's dealing with Syria or North Korea. The pattern of the way in which the president has undertaken <laughs> national security issues illustrated in the Ukraine situation suggests abuse of power. That's the The hardest hitting band in rock. Five Finger Death Punch with special guest Papa Roach. I Prevail and Ice Nine Kills. Get tickets now at LiveNation.com. New album Fate out February 28th. All right, so uh, the uh, U.S. intelligence community has concluded, they briefed the Senate on this, that uh, this is a conspiracy theory originally put out by Vladimir Putin himself. Uh, why do you think there are some members of your party advancing this theory that the Russians are pushing? Well, there, there's uh, uh, no dispute that Alexander Chalupa, a paid consultant for the DNC, was actively soliciting the Ukrainian embassy and officials within that embassy uh, for dirt on the Trump campaign during the 2016 election. There is no dispute that there were Ukrainian officials uh, interfering in our election by writing scathing editorials uh, against uh, uh, President Trump's candidacy. 
of uh, if we're concerned about uh, foreign interference in our elections, we ought to be concerned with all foreign interference on our elections. But writing editorials and making statements is very different than hacking a DNC server, uh, a computer, and, and stuff like that, which the Russians clearly did. Well, you know, clear, clearly those allegations are of a far higher degree uh, than what the Ukrainians were doing. But the fact that, the, that, that, that there were attempts by a DNC consultant uh, to enlist the help of a foreign power in the election uh, ought to be concerning to everyone. It is exactly the same principle. And if we are a, a, a system that values equal justice under law, uh, we ought to be investigating these things regardless of whose ox is being gored. But I just want to be precise. I know you got to run. Uh, but there's no evidence that Ukraine was doing anything close to what the Russian intelligence services were doing. Is that right? Uh, the Ukrainian government, uh, uh, I, I would say we don't have any evidence of that. We do have evidence of Ukrainian government officials interfering, and we do have evidence, clear evidence, that the DNC's consultant was actively soliciting a foreign government for assistance. Congressman McClintock, we'll continue this conversation down the road. I know you got to run. Thanks so much for joining us. Tonight, a stunning rebuttal of virtually everything that President Trump has said again and again for years about what he calls the Russia hoax. That and impeachment hearings today that saw the president described as a clear and present danger to free and fair elections. Doesn't get much bigger than that. We begin with a report from the Justice Department's inspector general that exposes the president of the United States as fundamentally dishonest about the Russian investigation and the people who conducted it. In a moment, I'll talk with one of those people, former FBI Director James Comey, whom the president fired and has attacked relentlessly ever since, along with the men and women who worked for him and continue to work at the Bureau, at the Justice Department, and inside the intelligence community. The Inspector General's report also identified significant errors in how the FBI conducted what became known as Crossfire Hurricane. Keep in mind, what he said is not true there. The report details the ways in which none of that is true, and just for the record, even after receiving the Inspector General's report, the president has continued saying these things. He's mischaracterized what is in the actual report, painting it as a vindication instead of the indictment. It actually is the indictment of what he has been saying. Keep it honest, the word for it is gaslighting. So before going any further, I just want to read you some key passages from the report itself, which, again, does identify significant problems with how the investigation was conducted. That said, the inspector general, after a two-year investigation, concluded, and I'm quoting now from the report, that the FBI had an authorized purpose when it opened Crossfire Hurricane to obtain information about or protect against a national security threat or federal crime, even though the investigation also had the potential to impact constitutionally protected activity. The report goes on to say that the decision to open the investigation, quote, was in compliance with department and FBI policies, and we did not find documentary or testimonial evidence that political bias or improper motivation influenced his decision. As for the spying allegations, the inspector general writes, quote, we found no evidence that the FBI placed any CHSs, which are confidential sources, or UCEs, undercover employees, within the Trump campaign, or tasked any CHSs or UCEs to report on the Trump campaign. In short, no spying, no political bias, no witch hunt, no traitors. Just human beings doing their best and sometimes falling far short against what they had reason to believe was a serious threat. Once again, Fox News every night from 5 o'clock till midnight. If you tuned in, you're going to hear right-wing talk radio. But during the day, they may slant more conservative, but they're reporting the news 
There's not a minute of the day on CNN that you're not hearing from a lefty Sean Hannity. That, that's what you're going to tune into. I mean, Jim Acosta, Lavrov has arrived at the White House. I just asked if the Russians will stay out of the 2020 election. That's a reporter. That's supposed to be a reporter. But they're not. They're activists. That's who they are. And they're obsessed with Fox News. The problem with the CNN business plan is they're going to cover Fox News incessantly, which just forces people to go watch Fox News. Brian Flood, huge congrats to Bill Hemmer on well-deserved gig. Best in the business. I'm proud to work with him. Reality is, Shep Smith's leaving because he's a super lib gay guy who could no longer work there, and he had to go to probably MSNBC. I don't know where he's going. He'll end up on MSNBC or CNN and have the gay hour. They'll put him an hour before Cooper, who's before, you know, Lemon, and they'll just have the whole three hours of gay guys because they want to show how enlightened they are. Oliver Darcy, as Mediate notes, Bill Hammer lacks the contrarian truth-telling and appeal to journalistic integrity that defined the 3 p.m. hour when it was hosted by Chef Smith. He literally tweeted that. Now, you understand, Chef Smith during Obama was a piece of dog shit. He was human fucking filth. But Chef Smith doesn't like Trump. So now... He has journalistic integrity. Tell me anywhere on the CNN lineup there's journalistic integrity. Bobby Harlow? No, no, that's not it. Your morning show? No, all of them push anti-gun stuff. There, No, that's not it. Shit, I can't name a time. Brian Seltzer, who you know spends all his time watching Fox. As Adian notes, you can expect Hammer to have less oppositional stance towards Trump world than Shemp had. Here's a full story about Bill Hammer taking over Shep Smith's Fox time slot, describing how his style is significantly different than Smith's. Sources at Fox describe a balancing act. Anchors who want to challenge guests and call out Trump's lies feel constrained by their own viewers. They believe the audience will turn on them and incite Shep's experience to prove the point. Details here and here. The details basically boil down to Bill Hemmer isn't nearly as objective and professional as we at CNN are. Yeah, he he typed that. Hemmer isn't known for aggressively fact-checking political falsehoods or challenging President Trump's misinformation the way that Smith this. This is from their article they did. Because they had to write an article. This is news. Just like the Starbucks coffee. CNN. Facts first. Smith's style was to cut through confusion by presenting detailed facts and figures, particularly in response to Trump's deceit. <clears throat> this made him a heroic figure to some journalists, but this also alienated Smith for much of the Fox base. Hemmer significantly less conf- confrontational as co-anchor of the late morning program America's Newsroom. Hemmer has allowed guests to advance misleading talking points without much of a challenge. CNN does it every day. Everybody who voted for fucking Trump is a Nazi. Everybody who voted for Trump is a racist. Everybody who voted for Trump is part of a cult. Everybody who owns guns is a murderer. That's like every day on CNN. 
There are some examples of Hammer providing pushback to White House aides and other guests, but his general approach is to ask questions and accept the response he receives, even if it's deceptive or an accurate response. Stelzer and Darcy don't really offer any examples to show that Hammer accepts deceptive or inaccurate responses, maybe because they would invite people to bring up examples of CNN anchors accepting deceptive or inaccurate responses, and then list a million. Or examples of CNN hiring contributors known for deception and inaccuracy. In any case, they have multiple guys they hired. Mickey White. Does this guy cover anything other than Fox News? And then you understand Fox News, people don't like Geraldo. There's always something when he goes on the five, people go lose their goddamn mind. This is his tweet. Fuck Russia and fuck you. I don't have any infatuation. You're the smitten one obsessed with Fox. And it was to David Frum. Because that's a story. It's a story. I mean, that's what the media does. They write stories, copy each other's stories about how Trump's a piece of shit. Everybody who voted for him is a piece of shit. Middle of America is a piece of shit. You know, it always is like it goes back to your shithole country. You guys think most of the country's shithole. You say it every day, but the president says about a real shithole country, not your fellow countrymen, and you get your butt just all twisted up. But they all write stories about other networks, like this. Bloomberg Magazine touts how CNN boss Jeff Zucker defined 2019 for Democrats. What does that say about your news network? I mean, you're literally on the air saying, we're real news, fact first, Tapper, Costa, Seltzer. We push back. Yeah, we push back on Republicans, but we don't do it to Democrats. And you have Bloomberg saying, you defined 2019 for Democrats. Business Week magazine pwned a puff piece on CNN President Jeff Zucker for a Bloomberg 50 cover package on the people who define 2019. CNN defined 2019 and Fox often with double or triple the viewership did not. Well, BBW's Felix Gillette touted CNN's profits and how they are spotlighted in Saturday Night Live skits. SNL portrayals acknowledge the great impact CNN has played in a loony year in politics and its part in popular culture. Zucker says, Gillette's story insisted CNN define 2019 because the roughly 50 town halls CNN has hosted for Democratic presidential candidates have played a major role in shaping the primary. This is apparently doing penance for all their live Trump coverage in the last cycle. Zucker said we were conscious of those who rightly criticized television in the last election for not spending enough time on the issues and for not digging deeper into where candidates stood on them. But you only have Democrats on, and you only do Democrat stuff. But this was coming from Bloomberg, which, understand, Bloomberg, because he's running for president, has literally put out that they can't cover the Democratic candidates. So the political reporters for Bloomberg are not able to write anything about Dems, only their constant Trump bashing. And ABC, CBS, NBC, PBS, they just ignore it. He recently said, Minnie Mike Bloomberg has instructed his third-rate news organization not to investigate him or any Democrat, but to go 
after President Trump only. Well, you've got a nickname already. What's your response to what Well, I don't know that I would accept the nickname. <laughs> when I started a news business in my company, I hired somebody outside. Their job is to run the news organization. Their job is to set the ethics. Um, I think people have said to me, how can you investigate yourself? And I said, I don't think you can. Mm -hmm. But if you take a look at the Bloomberg News Organization, we carry news from uh, lots of different mm -hmm. places, like New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. There's plenty of ways for people to get news about the candidates if they look at Bloomberg News. But even your own uh, news reporters have complained. They think it's unfair that they're not allowed to investigate they, they, other Democratic candidates because their boss okay, is in the race. We have, you ha just have to learn to live with some things. Okay. They get a paycheck. But with, with your paycheck comes some restrictions and responsibilities. On Monday, Trump campaign revoked press credentials for reporters from Bloomberg News since their owner, Michael Bloomberg, is running for president and ordered his hundreds of reporters to avoid all investigative reporting, not only on him, but all the Democratic rivals. Even as they promised to continue investigating Trump, television networks have been intensely critical for three and a half years now of Donald Trump's alleged destruction of journalism norms. How have they covered and or condemned Bloomberg's destruction of journalistic norms? They haven't mentioned it. Not once. Not at all. And as you heard in him saying, you just have to learn to live with some things. They get a paycheck, and it comes from the company. And from the company that I started, not running at the moment, turned it over to somebody else to do that. But with your paycheck comes some restrictions and responsibilities. Now, remember... This is one of the Democrats who have said, how could you work for Trump? She's a liar. I mean, this is what Democrats say. Everybody that works for Trump's a liar, loose to the facts, pieces of shit. I thought working for your paycheck makes you have some restrictions. Isn't that what you just said? I mean, I'm asking for a friend. Fucking communist piece of shit. That's just another norm that, once again, we're always talking about norms. Trump is destroying norms. He's not normal. This is not normal. Blah, 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 blah. But the left, every one of your media organizations, this is not normal. You fight everything the president does? You support an impeachment that has nothing to do with anything for high crimes and misdemeanors? Really? When have we been normal? We went normal for eight years of Obama where you guys just jerked off to his likeness on votive candles. So, yeah. Let's go into hate tweets. We'll only do one song for this podcast. Kind of cutting down the music. Hey, Tweets, we're going to start right in with Nikki Haley saying something, and I, for God's sake, this was all over Twitter. You fucking people. Hey, Tweet of the Day! South Carolina fell to her knees when this happened. This is one of the oldest African-American churches these 12 people were amazing people. They loved their church. They loved their family. They loved their community. And here is this guy that comes out with his manifesto 
holding the Confederate flag and had just hijacked everything that people thought of. We don't have hateful people in South Carolina. There's always the small minority that's always going to be there. But people saw it as service and sacrifice and heritage. And But once he did that, there there was no way to overcome it. And the national media came in in droves. They wanted to define what happened. They wanted to make this about racism. They wanted to make it about gun control. They wanted to make it about Mm -hmm. death penalty. And I really pushed off the national media and said there will be a time and place where we talk about this, but it is not now. We're Mm going to get through the funerals. We're going to respect them. And then we will have that conversation. And we had a really tough few weeks of debate, but we didn't have riots. We had vigils. We didn't Mm -hmm. have protests. We had hugs. And the people of South Carolina stepped up and showed the world what it looks like to to show grace and strength in the eyes of tragedy. This was a Twitter moment, as you can expect. They lost their fucking minds because she said Dylan Roof hijacked the Confederate flag. And she would be right. The majority of people who liked the Confederate flag, which once again... Go back and listen to the fucking shows. I'm not a Confederate flag guy. I argued with a black guy who was actually my company commander who was for the Confederate flag for heritage and blah, 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 blah. I was a Yankee. I don't know shit. Blah, blah, blah. Those are on tape. But she's right. The majority, that was their heritage. It was something that meant something to them as Southerners. But this kid used it, and boom, she's spot on. The national media, they came in and wanted to make it racism. Everybody's in the South racist. Everybody. That's what they believe, because they're liberals. Liberals truly believe that everybody who lives in the South is a fucking hillbilly who's fucking their cousin and is linked to slavery. I mean, for fuck's sake, on our next show, once again, Al Green is saying that we must link this impeachment to slavery. What the fuck, Chuck? What the hell does Trump making a phone call have to do with slavery? But this is what the left do. They take, it's all emotion. It's not factual. It's emotion. If we can milk something and get people scared to get to the fucking polls, it'll work. Whereas Republicans don't have to. Every day we see it. We know what we're up against if you're a conservative person like me. I'm not a Republican, but I'm a conservative. I know if I elect a person like AOC, they don't give a fuck about me because I'm a white guy. Even if I was a black guy, a person of color, I still wouldn't rate as high as a gay, black, Latino, whatever, person of color. They live on that intersectionality scorecard that you get more check marks as long as you fill in the box. And they will make it so people can get everything for free, because that's what they're about. She goes out, and most of the left did, because Trump was redoing welfare. Just like Bill Clinton did, by the way, and making some work requirements. So people aren't just living on the dole. AOC, my family relied on food stamps. When my dad died at 48, I was a student. If this happened then, we might just have starved. 
Now many people will. It's shameful how the GOP works overtime to create freebies for the rich while dissolving lifelines of those who need it most. None of that's accurate. Nate Lerner. Donald Trump is kicking 700,000 people off food stamp. Who does this affect most? Families. 68% of food stamp recipients are families with children. 33% are families with members who are elderly or disabled. 44 are in working families. These cuts are disgraceful. And then people who don't live by emotion and actually research stuff. Bondingo report. Well, then it's a good thing this policy doesn't apply to people with dependents. And also interesting how you think that reintroducing work requirements for food stamps will harm people on food stamps who work. Good luck with any future fear-mongering. I mean, there it is. If they're already working families, this doesn't apply to them. Work requirements for welfare existed until the USDA suspended them in 2009 in response to the financial crisis. It's since been up to the states to individually reintroduce work requirements that they please. What happened to those states that did reintroduce them after Kansas ended its work requirement waiver? They saw a 75% decline in its caseloads of able-bodied adults with dependents. The figure for Maine was 80%. What about when work requirements were passed nationally under Bill Clinton? Within five years of the enactment of TANF, T-A-N-F, Caseloads dropped by approximately 50% as caseloads plummeted. Unemployment and earnings among low-income single parents surged upward. Unemployment for never-married mothers increased by 50%. Unemployment of single mothers with less than high school education increased by two-thirds. And employment of young single mothers between the age of 18 and 24 doubled. Peter J. Hassan, another viral but misleading tweet from AOC, the work requirement rule doesn't affect parents, which she would have known had she read the story. The USDA rule change affects people between the age of 18 and 49 who are childless and not disabled. The rule applies to able-bodied adults between the age of 18 and 49 who do not have dependents. The rule wouldn't apply to parents with minor children, the elderly, or disabled. But once again, why know things? Why factually... And I am sure... I'm not saying that um, Chucklehead AOC is stupid. She's not. But she knows her brainless followers... They're not going to take the time to go research this. They are millennials. They just see nice little clickbait, and they lose their fucking minds and go all crazy. Trump bad. And they can go by CNN tweets and all these little tweets that always fulfill their echo chamber of Trump bad. But it just takes two seconds to go research These are the same work requirements that Clinton had and everybody had. Because there are able-bodied people who decide not to do anything just because they can get food stamps. And with an economy that's good, well, what the fuck? Why wouldn't you go out and do it? I mean, I'm not being a hypocrite. Sure, I'm not working. I have a disability check and I have a retirement check. But if my wife wasn't working and we weren't living a comfortable life, I would be working. And I damn sure wouldn't be taking food stamps. Just wouldn't be doing it. But there are a class of people in this country who will take everything. It's the 
the amazing thing about it is everybody just said it was racist, but nobody disputed that Romney was correct. There is a group of people that will sit on their fucking ass and just take the dole. And the majority are white. But nobody ever argued back off that 47% to get people to realize what he was saying was factual and he wasn't talking about black people. The majority of people on food stamps are white dipshits. Then we have this one. Remember, hate tweets is just a jumbled mess of stuff that I put together. Twitter employee violated policy with tweets harassing NDNGO. On December 6th, a Twitter user reported to Post Millennial that two of Michael's tweets had violated the Twitter term of service. Michael then locked his account. The Post Millennial reached out to Twitter, verified disciplinary action had been taken against Michael since his harassment at NDNGO was reported on, but did not hear back by time of publication. The Post Millennial has learned that Twitter account that has been engaged in targeting harassment of TPM editor and large at large NDNGO appears to belong to no other than a Twitter employee. Huge Andy NGO fan. Max Michaels. In here he has uh it's almost like there's a repercussion for being a piece of shit. It began June 29 after NGO was bloodied while reporting for Antifa Ryan Portland beneath the tweet calling for information, which might lead to arrest of those involved. Michael wrote, it's almost like there are repercussions for being a piece of shit. Under another tweet, NGO, Michael replies, you should just get fat again and hang out on Reddit acting sad. I like fat, sad, Andy better. Michaels also replied to journalist Peter Hassan, who was reporting on NGO's brain bleed as a result of his beating at the riot, calling the hemorrhage a lifelong pre-existing condition for garbage Andy. Yeah, that's a Twitter employee. Yeah, that makes sense. Totally makes sense. Judge drives, drops five felony charges against journalists who exposed Planned Parenthood. Because they went to a real judge, not a liberal. So that whole case out there about the body chop shop. Yeah, that's all got dropped. Next article. After 60 minutes pressure, will YouTube allow free speech? 60 Minutes correspondent Leslie Stahl visited YouTube headquarters in San Bruno, California to have a scorching interview with YouTube CEO Susan Wosicek, who believes that, uh, remember that if you listen to, uh, Ben Shapiro, it's a gateway drug to white supremacists. Stahl opened the episode by saying that the Internet's biggest video platform has come under increasing scrutiny, accused of propagating white supremacy, peddling conspiracy theories, and profiting from it all, setting the tone for an intense interview. Leslie Stahl commented, you recently tightened your policy on hate speech. Why'd you wait so long? Wazowski explained that the rules had to be reshaped and reinforced by a combination of people and machines, including a team of 10,000 people who are focused on controversial uh, content. You can go too far and that can become censorship, the YouTube CEO cautioned. We have been working really hard to figure out what's the right way to balance responsibility with freedom of speech. Narrating for the segment, Stahl then proclaimed that the private sector is not legally beholden to the First Amendment. She then inquired, you're not operating under some freedom of speech mandate. You get to pick. Wojcicki replied, we do. 
and further suggested, while this may be true, we think there's a lot of benefit from being able to hear from groups and underrepresented groups that otherwise would never have heard from. Stahl summarized YouTube policy, stating that videos are allowed as long as they don't cause harm, but her, Waziski's, definition of harm can seem narrow. 60 Minutes Overtime filled a segment that said same day about Section 230's project of tech companies from the consequences of user post. Wojcicki admitted that if there was a law that said this is the type of content you can't have, then we remove it. However, she clarified by explaining her company's current stance on hate, stating, just to be clear, because you've asked me so many questions about hate, that's not necessarily something we're getting any legislation about. That's allowed. That's allowed here in the U.S. YouTube has had a troubled history in regards to censorship. However, conservative pundit Dan Bondingo responded to 60 Minutes interview tweet warning, make absolutely no mistake, 60 Minutes piece on YouTube tonight is nothing more than a push by liberal activists to silence conservatives through corporate pressure. Liberals and their media pals despise free speech. An example of the platform's unstable policy for free speech occurred last Saturday, August, sorry, a day after deplatforming many right-wing accounts, YouTube released a creator blog titled Preserving Openness Through Responsibility. <clears throat> it proclaimed itself as an open platform for diverse and controversial ideas. After being unclear regarding why these channels were removed, YouTube mysteriously reinstated some of these deplatformed channels the next day while leaving other offline. YouTube even reportedly banned a retired Navy SEAL, retired Senior Chief Petty Officer Dan Shipley. He used his channel to expose Covington activist Nathan Phillips as being a refrigerator mechanic for the USMC rather than a recon ranger. More recently, it's become public that the Heritage Foundation has been sparring behind closed doors with video hosting platform regarding a video that was taken down from the Daily Signals channel. The video in question featured a pediatrician who said, if you want to cut off a leg or an arm, you're mentally ill, but you want to come off, cut off healthy breasts or penis, you're transgender. YouTube posted a term of service update of upcoming policy to take effect on December 10th. Some worry that the policy update is more akin to purge of con- controversial creators. One of the rules states that YouTube may terminate your access or your Google account access to all or part of the service if YouTube believes it's sole discretion that provision of the service to you is no longer commercially viable. Mashable speculated these terms can be seen as YouTube giving itself the ability to remove users and channels that disseminate hate speech or other violent rhetoric. YouTube informed Mashable that it made changes to its term of service in order to make things easier to read and to ensure they're up to date, also claiming that it is not changing the way our product works, how we collect or process data, or any other settings. But based on the YouTube problematic history of customer service, users and creators may have a right to be concerned. More channels will get dumped. You just got to use something else. I'll have to. I'll honestly admit, SoundCloud is probably just as liberal as everything else, but they've never, ever made me edit anything I've ever done. I don't think anybody ever listens to it. I've had a couple um, content complaints, like I used a bumper and one time it was Jimi Hendrix and somebody heard it. They told me to yank it, so I edited it out. Um, 
But I, from what I've heard from everybody in every chat room I've ever gone to, they don't give a fuck what you say. Really. It's free and open source. And that's the way it should be. Now, I'm not saying YouTube should not stop people from showing murders and all that kind of crap. But when you get into this, what is hate speech? The left makes everything hate speech now. That's how they silence arguments. There is no discussion. They just, that's hate speech. That's hate speech. That's hate speech. Everything's fucking hate speech. Just saying, chopping off a leg is insane, but taking off a penis and a breast is transgender. It's true. It's the most absurd concept I've ever heard. But that's what the left wants us to buy. Washington Post just released a cartoon version of the Mueller report. Just going to leave that there. Yeah. Pretty much sums up the Mueller report in my eyes. Molly Hemingway. Fun reminder that Jerry Naylor revealed his impeachment plan for both Kavanaugh and Trump in my presence on an Amtrak from New York to D.C. the morning after Election Day in 2018. For those who think it's about 2019 phone call with Ukraine. Whole article, incoming Democrat chairman, Dems will go all in on Russia impeachment Kavanaugh for perjury. They, they already, they were already on it, folks. There was no doubt they were going to do this. Daily Caller, Chuck Todd asked House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler, if Trump is not removed from office, will we have a fair election in 2020? Let me ask you this. If he's acquitted, do you believe we'll have a fair election in 2020? I don't know. The president, uh, based on his past performance, will do everything he can to make it not a fair election. And that is part of what gives us the urgency uh, to proceed with this impeachment. Chairman Nadler, I'm going to leave it there. Uh, thank you for coming on and sharing your views. I appreciate thank it. you. The entire world asks, Chuck, do you think this is an unbiased, objective question? I wrote on the thread, he's just going to block you. That's what he does. But they're seeding, folks. They're seeding for 2020. Other one, market watch. Trump would become king if impeachment fails. Scholars warn. That's a whole article. Nathan Brand. The Washington Post opinion page, if you don't agree with us, you must be a Russian access. It has come to this. Ted Cruz is Putin's stooge. Mitch McConnell is a Russian asset. Here are 18 reasons Trump could be a Russian asset. The entire Republican Party is becoming a Russian asset. Those articles are just from 2019. They're seething, man. They are seething. This impeachment is not going well. They can't believe this motherfucker might be able to actually get reelected. They can't have it. And I have graphic proof in three little sound bites that sum up our media objective journalists, which are really democratic activists, losing their mind. The first one includes machine guns. I think for particularly for voters of color, there is no conversation of interest to talk about uniting, to be blunt, with the party that has given up not just its moral standing, but its soul to that to, to, to the person who is president of the United States right now. The danger of Donald Trump is much more extant to my community. Mm-hmm. It's much more mm-hmm. extant to both my immigrant relatives 
to African Americans, to Latinos. It's not about whether or not we can regain our public standing on the world stage and be seen as America as America was to people who look like me. It's about imminent danger. Donald Trump is dangerous to our families. He's dangerous to our lives. The the you know my 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 son, my our youngest son goes to uh, Syracuse University, where right now the you know manif- the manifesto of the Texas shooters being sent around to immigrant students, to black students, to Asian American students. People are afraid to be in school right now, and just being black or brown feels dangerous. LGBT community feel their marriages are in danger, in danger now. And so the idea of uniting and coming together, that sounds fine for Pete Buttigieg to say, you know, to middle class white America that wants to come together with their uncle who's a Trumper. That is not going to work in communities of color. And I think one of the fundamental challenges that Pete Buttigieg has is that he's not communicating to my community right now. He's not communicating to my community at all on issues like policing. People want to know why he fired that police chief. Getting, you know, saying that he's got a great, you know, long-term plan for black America, that's lovely. He speaks very well. He's quite articulate. That is not helping people who are afraid. Simply facts and the laws are not going to protect us right now. And the the, the, the point being for the Democrats, we need to twist and meld and work. We are fighting against an enemy, the Republicans, with machine guns. And we can't bring a knife to it. And I'm not saying do anything dishonest, but we have to find a way to take what is happening there and make it so compelling to the voter, because otherwise we're going to get four more years of Donald Trump and we cannot survive. Four. Four more I mean, years. you know, if you go, if you run your threat, well, thank you. Thank you I want to just go back to Ted Cruz as a man mm-hmm. for a second. Joe, you grew up in Pensacola. I grew up in Queens. What would, what would your reaction be if somebody came after your father, if somebody came after your wife? You know, the, the, the pathetic uh, weeniness of him. I couldn't wait to run against a guy like that and say, what kind of man lets, not only lets it happen, but then gets on the bandwagon of somebody who went after their dad, who went after their wife, called their wife ugly. Joe, I know you're a very genteel man in Pensacola. They, they just debate things in a very nice way. How would you handle it as a politician if somebody came after your family? Mm. If somebody attacked my family, if somebody attacked my father and wife, I would spend the rest of my life actually focused on destroying their political career. I mean, I just would. I'd have no choice. That's just just the way it is. That's what what a man does. That whole soundbite right there just shows how fucking mental Trump has made people on MSNBC. That was Joy Reid. And everything Donnie Deutsch said, that is violent rhetoric. A Republican was to say, our enemy. And they have machine guns. So basically, the just as we need to nuke them. I mean, seriously, folks. That's some mental shit. But that's just, that's just your hors d'oeuvre, my friends. To the main course, Brian Seltzer. Oh, my God. Truth still matters. So let's talk more about the truth and why it matters and what's been happening uh, in the impeachment inquiry coverage. We have an incredible panel here in New York with me to talk about right-wing media's reaction and so much more. Uh, Nicole Hemmer, Dan Rather, Abigail Tracy, all here with me. Uh, And I've got to start with you, Dan, because uh, you are our senior correspondent today. 
You've been watching history along with the rest of us. Uh, do you feel that anything changed after these first two days of televised hearings? I think one thing has changed. It's becoming increasingly uh, apparent that truth is closing in. Truth does matter. And there's been this feeling for a long time that, well, the White House with this alternate narrative, a false narrative, and with its allies in primetime on Fox, was at least in a standoff with truth. Hmm. I think we've seen over the last few days, as I say, truth is beginning to close in. Facts are beginning to matter. You said the other day, I have covered many cults. Some end with a bang, others with a whimper, but they invariably end. The question is how much damage they leave in their wake. Is Mitch McConnell part of the Trump cult? Yes. I think the short answer is yes. And I'm not the only one making this observation that increasingly President Trump's support seems cultish. It's, more, it's all about him. It's not about the policy. It's not about the standards of politics. You know, Ronald Reagan had a, a very solid following, but he stood for something in terms of policy. Franklin Roosevelt, the same way, that these cults, uh, it, cults generally don't end well. The word cult has been popping up more and more. Uh, think back to two weeks ago on this program, Anthony Scaramucci uh, talked about his claim that Trump supporters are in a cult. Just last week, Dan Rather said he thinks support for Trump seems increasingly cultish. And this weekend in the Washington Post, uh, Trump critic and Republican strategist John Weaver said the GOP is not a party anymore in the traditional sense. It's a cult. But none of them are mental health experts. Stephen Hassan is. He's out with a brand new book called The Cult of Trump. He has firsthand experience escaping the Unification Church back in the 70s, and he's decided to write this book because he believes there's something seriously wrong with our politics. So I define a destructive cult as an authoritarian pyramid-structured group with someone at the top who claims to have total power and total wisdom that uses deception and, and control of behavior, information, thoughts, and emotions to make people loyal and dependent and obedient followers. So for me, the, the issue of between a, an ethical, healthy cult where you're free to think and free to leave versus a destructive cult, I'm referring to uh, uh, Trump's organization and, and mm. followership as a destructive cult where people are being fed propaganda and they're not being encouraged to think for themselves. They're not being encouraged to really explore and, and look at the details and arrive at their own conclusion. Much of what they're hearing is emotionally driven, uh, loaded words, thought-stopping st and, and thought-terminating type cliches like fake news or build the wall or make America great again. You say the president is using mind control, but how, how is that provable? So we can start with the pathological lying, which is characteristic of destructive cult. You have been around a little longer than me. Uh, you covered Watergate. You covered the Clinton impeachment. On the eve of another impeachment inquiry, uh, hearings this week, do you fear for the country? For the first time in my long life, and I was born in the Depression, lived through World War II, uh, have been a part of politics and government for all these years now. Yes, for the first time, because I, you know, a society, a democracy can die of too many lies. And we're getting close to that terminal moment unless we reverse the obsession with lies that are being fed around the country. 
So will people care this week? Will will democracy hold up through this process? Some people will always care. And we have to remember that we need to serve those people who will get up in the morning and watch the hearings, will come home at night and watch the hearings because they really want to be confused. They want, they, they want, to, be, uh, they want to understand. They want to cut through. Cut through the confusion. The, the, right. Yeah, the, the, the lies. So we have, to be, we have to be concerned with them. Then we have to think about how do we reach the people who don't care. It, do facts matter anymore? I think they do. Uh, I think they mattered in the Watergate hearings, in the Clinton hearings, and I think they'll matter this time, too. I listened this morning to uh, Donald Trump's rally in Louisiana. It was astonished. He shouted at his audience, and they responded. They believed everything he said. It, I'm hoping only 10% of those people come and watch the hearings in Toto. They will see it's not a witch hunt, and they will begin to doubt their master. And they will begin to break off and maybe become a citizen again instead of a partisan. Mm. So when he says coup and hoax, uh, even if many of his supporters believe that, it just takes 10 percent, perhaps, you're saying. Yeah, I think in a close election, as you know, he's strong in many states, even though he's not popular. Mm. And I think his chances of winning, like most people do, are, are, are pretty good. Mm. Uh, so that's we have to keep that in mind. It may be only a slight shift in the in, in, in the swing states, but of people who begin to doubt the lies and begin to live by something else. Really what President did, he called into Fox and Friends on Friday morning in order to talk for, what, 53 minutes about his view of how everything's going. Here's how the Washington Post described that interview. Uh, he said Trump continued to make lofty promises of soon-to-come bombshells. He peddled falsehoods. He spread long-debunked conspiracy theories. He attacked his perceived enemies. He dabbled in misogynistic tropes, all while playing the role of persecuted victim. Now, Margaret, you're at the Washington Post. That's why I wanted to share this. We need writing and reporting like that to explain how bonkers this is. Right. I mean, we can't just sort of say, you know, take it down the middle and sort of say, here's what the people on the right are saying. Here's what the people on the left are saying. I mean, that does amount to a false equivalency because, mm -hmm. unfortunately, you know, what's being viewed as left-wing media is actually what I like to call the reality-based press. Um, and, you know, I don't think that most of the time, and particularly on those evening shows, but as Oliver says, not just on the evening shows, you're not getting reality. You're getting a very skewed version of things and that is by design and you know the Republican Party and, and the right-wing press have really I mean we say this a lot but they've totally created and constructed this alternate universe and, and in that universe these people are telling the truth and everyone else is telling not one time in that whole segment can you call that objective media and the thing that's really sad about it they are so narcissistic and believe once again as I say all the time on the show Left believes they're the smartest people in the room. They think only their worldview is the right worldview. And they truly believe anybody who doesn't get it, well, you're just stupid. You're stupid, stupid people. I I, I don't know if it's in this podcast. Hold on a second. Now that I'm doing two podcasts, I'm wondering, oh, did I put it on the back end? It's in the next one. It is a guy from Vox literally saying that the people that read Vox, the journalists with Vox, they are enlightened people. And if people don't understand things or don't agree with things, it's because really you're just a stupid fuck. And during it, he made two grammatical errors. But that's the left.
we talked about on the show. When you're winning an argument with them, they're going to come up with a, well, at least I know between there and there, or this or that, your punctuation. That's their belief. They think they're super smart. So as Seltzer's going on and on, and remember, he started his career as a college student doing a podcast about how fucked up Fox News is. He was obsessed with Fox News. They gave him a show, and now he spends all the time being obsessed about Fox News and Trump and America and cults. He doesn't realize that's not real journalists. That's not real journalism. Nobody in America is looking for that or Hannity. That's not what we're looking for. And you have a guy like Dan Rather who got caught faking shit to try to get Bush impeached. I mean, seriously, that's your arbiter of facts and unbiased journalism. Really. They don't know it. They believe they are the smartest people. And if you don't think like them, if you don't vote the way they tell you to, you're racist, uneducated, sexist, cult because for dessert i present chuck todd exasperated about the impeachment how the democrats are just blowing it and having a full yelling match with ted cruz who wouldn't come on his show and just play trump bad i i'm having a quick flashback to the oj trial frankly where the facts were damning but it didn't matter and yet he was innocent, but I'd also, but everybody knew he was guilty. It was, so, are we about to head into a situation like that where he's going to get acquitted and yet everybody's going to know he's guilty? Chuck, let me point out a game that the media is playing. You know, a question that, that you've asked a number of people is you've, you've said to senators sort of aghast, do you believe that Ukraine and not Russia interfered in the election? Now that, that in, in, in a court of law would be struck as a misleading question. Of course Russia interfered in our election. Nobody looking at the evidence disputes that. Uh, but the what president the media of the United is States pretending does. is, uh, look, n- it, on the evidence, Russia clearly interfered in our, ev- in our election. But here's the game the media is playing. Because Russia interfered, the media pretends nobody else did. Ch- Chuck, Chuck, I understand that you want to dismiss Ukrainian interference because, A, they were trying to get Hillary Clinton elected, which is what the vast majority of the media wanted anyway, and, B, it's inconvenient for the narrative. You know, it's hysterical. Two years ago, there was article after article after article in the mainstream media about Ukrainian interference in the elections, but now the Democrats have no evidence of a crime, no evidence of violating the law, and so suddenly Ukrainian interference is treated as the media clutches their pearls. Oh, my goodness, you can't say that. Last week, Chuck, you called Senator John Kennedy basically a stooge for Putin. I did not. The press but needs don't to stop being ridiculous Senator, and just and, and, and are you acting concerned? like they work for Adam Schiff. That was great. I actually got the wrong soundbite, but I played it anyway. Of Cruz just nuking that motherfucker because he did call him a stooge. He did. Remember, Chuck Todd doesn't want facts. He's a Democrat. He wants emotion. He wants the oration of his dear leader, Barack Hussein Obama, again. Where it doesn't really matter if he's not doing what the Constitution says. He's a good man. He's smart like me. 
Because remember, he even had a mint in the 2016 cycle. He always goes to the, the easiest put-down of people who don't think like him. Uneducated voters. Because Chuck Todd, if you don't have a fucking degree, you're a piece of shit. You don't even deserve to be American. You're a fucking hand worker. I'm Chuck Todd. And he won't even acknowledge that he was a staffer for a Democrat. His wife is a major player with the Democrats. And how dare you question his integrity? I am a journalist. Because just like Brian Seltzer, he doesn't know. He truly believes he's the smartest person in the room. He reeks intellectual honesty. But he never had it. He was the first to say anything you tried to throw towards a bomb and call it a scandal was just politics. And now he's on board for a full-fledged fucking impeachment on a president of the United States based on a phone call. Because they couldn't get anything else. Yeah. Okay. Tweets of the day, Alyssa Milano. I had a bad panic attack last night. Any specialists out there know why my anxiety is so much worse right after my period? Which hormone is depleted? Christy Swanson, I love you. I just love you, because this reply is beautiful. You are pre-menopausal with an unbearably high level of TDS. Best of luck. <laughs> You're still having meltdowns about kids in cages. You didn't give a fuck in 2012. She's spot on. Malcolm Nance shows the next thing, and I put this in the tweet of the day because it's just so fucking good. At JFK Airport, Terminal 1, I found this display of Trump-branded chocolate for sale. It's been there for a long time. The staff told me not one piece is sold. Why would they think foreigners would spend money on his pictures beyond me? Here's the replies. When I pass those displays, I turn the chocolate bars around. Or really anyone, for that matter, is flying through there. Maybe they should try an airport in Laramie or perhaps Valadoskov, Moscow. I bought a bar at JFK Terminal 1 and my son made a voodoo doll out of it. Good Lord, America, this is what would happen in Papangyang. This is what North Korea would do. Why is this even being sold? They had Obama candy bars too, dumbasses. They had all sorts of Obama shit in the fucking D.C. airport. I was there. You guys didn't have a problem with that. You were selling payment, hope and change photos, print art, with him looking like he was a god. You're fucking hypocrites. New York Times Flux Facts Check 101. Their star Trump voter, they did a whole article about how he's not going to vote for Trump. He never voted in 2016. And our last tweet of the day before we go into SAD, which is Pensacola. Got to cover it this show. That's how we'll close today. I opened my weather.com app. You know, there's always some theatrics. But the end is nigh. That global warming is going to eat us all. We're dying right now. But this one, even, even for the fucking crazy Thunberg crowd... This is this is a bit fucking much, folks. It's a bit fucking much. Let me pause it really quick. I gotta read it to you because it's audio. 
And it was the first thing. It showed my daily forecast, and then they have their videos. And usually it's like a snowplow getting stuck or a horrible crash somewhere in Nebraska. There's like 50-car pileup. This one, wow. Climate change is threatening to wipe out Santa's reindeer. Yeah, that's that's what they went with. Let me read what they say. They have a big reindeer looking at you. His eyes are all bulgy like, we're going to die. The wild reindeer population has declined by more than 2 million over the past... Past... Sorry, it's going really fast. Past 20 years. 20 years. Reindeer are native to Arctic and subarctic regions in Europe, Siberia, and North America. Warming temperatures have made it tough for them to find food. And their picture is reindeer digging through snow to get food. Hmm. The ground thaws and refreezes more often, covering nutrients and vegetation and thick ice. Yeah, that's our tweet of the day, because that pretty much fucking sums up the fucking crazy, crazy weather channel. Listen, I pay you $20 a year not to have ads, but there's no way for me to filter out your fucking climate calamity bull fucking shit. I would believe you if you weren't rebranding for the fourth fucking time. So, shut the fuck up. And then one last nugget. I might as well get this one in. We'll go straight in to two sound bites. One, Warren finally admitted she shouldn't have lied about her ethnicity. And the media, before they knew what was really happening, once again, going, gotta get those guns for the Pensacola shooting. Grew up in Oklahoma, and my three older brothers and I learned about our family, same way most people do, from our mom and from our dad. Uh, my family's very important to me, and that's why uh, many years ago, I sometimes identified as Native American. Boston Globe did a big investigation about this, um, gosh, about a year and a half ago. Never had anything to do with any job I ever got or any benefit. Um, but uh, even so, I shouldn't have done it. I- you were here talking about a terror attack that took place on the London Bridge. And while it was devastating that two people were killed, he didn't have access to guns. They went after him with fire extinguishers, a narwhal tusk. He had uh, knives duct taped to his hands. Had he had the kind of access to long guns that he would have if he were in the United States, how much more devastating could an attack like that have been? London Bridge is a crowded place. Yeah, Stephanie, it's two parts, right? It's the frequency of these attacks, which we've talked about ad nauseum over the last five years, right? It's it's a mass shooting every week. Uh, I'm here talking to you about one of these attacks somewhere. But then it's also the impact. The impact in the United States comes from the access to weapons. Even on these military bases, uh, weapons are tightly controlled. When I lived on a military base, I, I was not allowed to have a weapon 
happened. It usually had to be stored at the arms room. So oh, hold on. That's, I think that would be a surprise, at least to me. So walk me through this again. Yeah, on the military base, and I mean, I don't know what it is at this uh, military base, but you had to actually register and check your weapons in. You were not allowed to keep those in your uh, private housing or your house and workspace. So you couldn't just walk around with weapons. It was actually more controlled at the time than it would be in the civilian public. So that's my question. If it's an open carry state, it would be more uh, controlled if you were on a military base because I think the average person, i.e. me, wouldn't guess that. Yeah, you actually can't just go into the military base. This is federal property, even though it might reside in some of the states. And this has been a hot issue in terms of debate with the military, particularly the U.S. Army, about would they change their rules with regards to weapons and weapons access on the base. And what you've seen, uh, like, for example, at the Naval Yard in Washington, D.C., when they had, I think it was 12 people killed, the person actually broke down a shotgun, brought it in through the gates, through a bag. He had authorized access to the base, but not access to, or not authorization to actually bring in weapons. It has now been just 12 days since that latest school shooting and classes will resume on Monday. And it has been almost two years since a former student opened fire at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. The deadliest high school shooting in U.S. history where 17 people were killed and 17 others injured. Now, the father of one of those victims is speaking out in a scathing new op-ed directed at President Trump and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Fred Guttenberg writes in this new op-ed, quote, Joining me now, the author of that op-ed, Fred Guttenberg, and Deputy Director of the Center for Gun Policy and Research at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, Cassandra Crefaci. Fred, um, your daughter hey, Jamie Stephanie. was just 14 years old, a dancer a student when she was killed. What do you make of the changes in gun legislation in the last two years? You know, I'm, I'm glad you distinguish between what's happening nationally and locally because you have mayors, governors, and state attorney generals across this country who are doing amazing heroic things. You have businesses who are doing amazing heroic things. Ed Stack of Dick Sporting Goods is my hero. However, you also have Washington, D.C. and What's happening in Washington is the House of Representatives, under the leadership of Speaker Pelosi and some really heroic people in the House, have gone ahead and passed legislation. Legislation that, if enacted into law, will start saving lives immediately. And sadly, Mitch McConnell and the current occupant of the White House are standing on it. They will not allow anything to go forward. And so it puts everything at a standstill. And what they do is is it's it's worse than doing nothing because then they take that and they act as if they're doing something and the house of representatives isn't and that's the ultimate lie and i will tell you um this next election can't come soon enough fred it was a specific tweet by the president that set off your response to both him and Mitch McConnell, mm -hmm. where he wrote this. Nancy Pelosi, Adam Schiff, AOC, and the rest of the Democrats are getting nothing, are, get, are not getting important legislation done. Hence the do-nothing Democrats. USMCA, National Defense Authorization Act, gun safety, prescription drug prices, and infrastructure are dead in the water because of the Dems. That was the tweet. <laughs> what was your immediate reaction? I called him a liar. Um, and because he uses his Twitter platform to redirect and to protect himself. Sadly, there were three sailors killed 
And before the media knew that it was a Saudi national national on flight training and that it was a ring, they, of course, went anti-gun, not actually pushing poor soldiers. Three Navy trainees tragically killed when a Saudi aviation student opened fire inside a classroom building at Pensacola Naval Air Station December 6th. Killed in the rampage were Ensign Josh, Joshua Caleb Watson, 23, from Coffey, Alabama. Airman Mohammed Sami Hatam, 19, from St. Petersburg, Florida. And Airman Apprentice Cameron Scott Walker, 21, from Richmond Hill, Georgia. Watson, identified by his family as a recent U.S. Naval Academy graduate, was a student at Pensacola Naval Aviation School Command. His family has come forward with account of how he managed to get outside the building despite mortal wounds and direct emergency responders to the location of the gunman. Haithman and Walters were enlisted students also at Naval Aviation School Command. The Navy has released no additional information about them, but in a statement, Pensacola Commanding Officer Captain Tim Kinsella said the men showed exceptional, exceptional heroism and bravery in the face of evil. When confronted, they didn't run from danger. They ran towards it and saved lives. If not for their actions and the actions of Naval Security Forces, they were first responders on the scene. This incident would have been far worse. He added that the tragedy would have lasting impact on the base and surrounding community. We feel the loss profoundly and grieve with the family and friends of the deceased. The base, which was locked down indefinitely following the shooting, is now open to mission essential personnel, he said, although families who live on the base will have access to their homes. Also closed until further notice is the Naval Aviation Museum and the Baracus National Cemetery. Seven others who were wounded in the shooting attack have not been identified. The shooter, who has been identified as Saudi Royal Air Force 2nd Lieutenant Mohammed Saeed Ashamarni, was killed by the Escambia County Sheriff's Office deputy. Defense Secretary Mark Esper and Acting Navy Secretary Thomas Moldley said they plan to review security protocol in light of this and another fatal shooting at Joint Base Pearl Harbor. Um... Next article, Saudi national suspected of killing three injured more in Pensacola Naval shooting. The man who shot and killed three people and injured seven more Friday morning at Naval Air Station Pensacola was a member of the Saudi military and was an aviation trainee at the base, according to CNN. The suspect has not been identified was killed by Escambia County shooters. Sheriff's Office deputies responded to the active shooter situation. Two deputies were shot in the gunfire, but both were expected to survive. The shooting erupted in a classroom building before 7 a.m. local time Friday morning. Scambia County Sheriff David Morgan said the suspect used a handgun. The shooting comes just days after a fatal shooting at Pearl Harbor Naval Shipyard in Hawaii. And next article, FBI detains 10 Saudis after attack. Searching for more after attacker had party to watch mass shooting videos. FBI officials have detained nearly a dozen Saudi nationals or are searching for several others after a member of the Saudi military opened fire in naval NAS Pensacola, killing three. The Associated Press Source told Associated Press that three students attended a dinner party and that one of those students recorded a video of the attackers committing the attack as it happened. Two other Saudi students watched from a car. Ten Saudi students were being held on the base Saturday, while some others were unaccounted for, said the official, who spoke on a condition and anonymity after being briefed by federal authorities. Trump, of course, tweeted to it, 
FBI Jacksonville, the NAS shooters identify as Saudi National Muhammad Ashamarami. Anyone with information, call this number. Matt Getz from Florida, who started our show today, on Friday that the alleged Saudi military official who committed the attack and committed an act of terrorism. Major news net organizations are now reporting the information that we began to learn earlier this morning that it was a Saudi Arabian military official in Pensacola in our community for training who committed three murderous acts in this terrible, terrible violence at NAS Pensacola. I think it's important for us to know a little bit about why Saudi Arabian officials are in our community to begin with. This is what we've been doing forever, Repub- or Senator, or Representative. If this were a murder, it would typically be invested by NCIS, but this was not a murder, Guess, Gets later added. This was an act of terrorism, and we speak the investigation being handed over to the NCIS, sorry about that, folks, to the FBI. That is the signal that will now be treated by our government as an act of terrorism, not murder. Ben Shapiro sums it up. Remember, everyone, if the shooter is suspected white supremacist, we must blame conservatives who oppose white supremacy. If the shooter is suspected Islamist terrorist, we must blame guns. Others responded, and if the shooter was liberal post on their social media, we just won't talk about it at all, which is what they've done, including the guy with the suicide list. When I first saw that this happened, I said mental health is no joke. The identity, race, religion had not been given yet. But of course, you'll go straight to blaming all Muslims and put out rhetoric like the time you inspired the attack in the Quebec mosque shooting. Guns are an issue either way. They're the tool used. White supremacists happen to identify as conservative. The policies pushed by conservatives resonate with them. That's what somebody said. Mark Levy, via... AP background checks on gun purchases in the U.S. are climbing towards record high this year, reflecting that the industry says is a rush by people to buy weapons in reaction to Democrat presidential candidates' calls for title restrictions. By the end of November, more than 25 million, 25.4 to be exact, background checks generally seen as strong indicator of gun sales has been conducted by the FBI, putting 2019 on pace to break the record of 27.5 set in 2016, the last full year Obama was in the White House. On Black Friday alone, the FBI ran 202,465 checks, one every 4.85 seconds because of Democrats pushing to take guns. I saw online your good shooter bullshit is bullshit because it's a post. We need to strengthen gun background checks, blah, blah, blah. Reality is on a military base, you can't have weapons. If you live in the barracks, you have to check your weapon. If you live in your quarters, you have to have your weapons in there. Nobody carries weapons on bases. But none of you liberals know that because you don't know anybody in the fucking military. You never even met anybody in the military. Secondly, he got a loophole to get the weapon. He found it and he got it. Whoever was that gun store is fucked. I mean, they are totally fucked. They have the weapon. They've already traced it to the gun broker, to the shop in the 4473 that states that this dickweed bought it. And those people are screwed. Somehow, some way, he got a gun and he shouldn't have because he wasn't even a resident of the United States. GOP pouncer, the rush to push gun control laws when they don't even know the situation is ridiculous. 
You know what would have been better? Would have stopped the last two? Better immigration vetting and better mental health for veterans. Warren hasn't done shit for either. Her tweet. Pearl Harbor, Pensacola, not even our military bases are safe from gun violence. I'm heart sick for the victims and their families. We must end this epidemic and protect the lives of our service members. You don't give a fuck about service members of Warren. If you have your way when you're president, we won't even have a goddamn military. Scott SFNY. Yep, definitely don't even consider anything that might mildly inconvenience you and save a kid. Your personal interest in having a firearm is superior to all other interests. Here's where it's getting good. Yes, owning a gun is all about interest. Note, we don't typically write about randos on Twitter unless the tweet is that good. GOP Pouncer. Scott, have you ever been raped? Well, I have. I'm five foot. A gun is an equalizer for a woman my side. I doubt you understand that. His response, that did not get a ban from Twitter, did not make the media. This would make this, this is just a rando. It would make the media. Seltzer would talk about this. I'd rather get raped a thousand times and see one more kid with a bullet in him. I doubt you understand that because all you think about is yourself. Aaron Worthy Walker. The fuck? You are so selfish for not being willing to be raped. This is a parody, right? No one is that weird. It's a real tweet. I have a screenshot. Joanne Mason. The only person capable of making this bizarre and creepy claim is someone who's never been the victim of rape. And you say this as if it's a choice. Get raped or some innocent child gets shot. What in the world are you talking about? Another, reread your last sentence again, you freak. I don't know that someone could come up with a statement more dismissive of women than that one, which applies to you, not her. You're a complete idiot. You just said that to a rape victim, unreal. Another, well, that is a perfectly sane response. But it shows the duality of the gun issue. Liberals don't give a fuck if women get raped. They don't give a fuck about domestic violence. They don't think of anything. They just want the gun. The gun on the intersectionality scorecard is higher than domestic violence. And they're already starting their red flag. And this is Florida. First red flag conviction in Florida after man refuses to give up his guns. A man from Deerfield Beach, Florida, faces a potential of five years in prison after being convicted for defying the state's red flag law, which allows authority to confiscate weapons from those deemed to be at high risk of committing a crime. The case is the first conviction under the state's relatively new gun law, which was passed as part of response to the horrific mass shooting at Stoneman Douglas, and they did it to get those kids out of their fucking office. Since the red flag law went into effect in March 2018, Florida has seized guns from over 2,000 residents of the state. But while the state has taken thousands of weapons, it has not convicted anyone for violating the law until this week. As reported by the Sun Sentinel, after being charged in March 2018 under the law for refusing to hand over his firearms, Jaron Smith, 33, was convicted by Broward County Court this week on charges carrying as many as five years in prison. Smith was arrested in 2018, accused of shooting at a car driven by a friend with whom he was having an argument over a borrowed cell phone. 
The outlet reports nothing that the victim was unhurt. In response, law enforcement officers issued a risk protection order requiring Smith to give up his weapons. When the orders arrived at his home, Smith did not fully understand how far his rights extended, or more significantly, how far they did not. His defense lawyer, Jim Lewis, insisted that Smith simply did not understand that the new law gave authority authorities the power to seize his weapons. He never had the opportunity to understand what was going on. He thought he had the right to have an attorney present before the order was executed. But prosecuting attorney Diana Shorian, a Democrat, maintains that Smith was clearly informed about the limits of his rights by deputies who came in the home ordering him to hand over his weapons. An encounter, the Sun-Sentinel notes, was recorded on body cam and played back for the jury. Chorian also pointed out that Smith told officers unprompted that he had concealed weapons permit, which the prosecutor argued demonstrates that he understood current gun law in Florida. Under Florida's red flag law, once a judge approves the law enforcement requested risk protection order, a defendant has two options, either hand the weapons over or give them to someone else who can legally possess them and vows to keep the weapons away from the defendant. According to a report by NPR, by August 2019, Florida courts had approved nearly 2,500 risk protection orders since the red flag law went into effect in March 2018. That's nearly five every day, more than any other state. An earlier September report by PolitiFact Florida provided more specific numbers between March 2018 and July 2019, Florida judges approved 2,396 risk protection orders, including 378 in Polk County, 350 in Pinellas County, 327 in Broward County, 173rd in Volusia, 127 in Miami-Dade. PolitiFact explained that the risk protection order required judges to take a different outlook than they would for a typical criminal case in which a judge is evaluating past behavior, instead asking a judge to predict a person's future behavior basically have clairvoyancy. Or as Broward Judge Jack Tudor put it, whether the person is going to carry out the threat. The fact check site also provides some details on how risk protection orders are secured after law enforcement determines a person possesses the risk to himself or others. An officer requests an order from the judge. A judge holds a hearing within 24 hours with the police officers who swear to the allegation. If the judge enters a temporary risk protection order, the judge will order a search of the respondent's home to secure any firearms or ammunition. Within a couple of weeks, the judge holds a final hearing, at which point a person can oppose the order. This is a civil process, so the respondent is allowed to hire an order or a lawyer, but there is no right to a court-appointed lawyer. Tudor estimates that in 90% of the cases, the orders are agreed to by the respondent. The order can last for up to a year, and then law enforcement can seek to renew it. The person's name is also entered in a national database to prevent federal dealers from selling the person a firearm. So basically, they can't really defend themselves. In some cases, hey, this makes sense. Mental health. A domestic abuser? I I totally agree with it. But once again, it's a liberal written law. There's no defense for this. Unless you have money, you can't defend your right to own weapons. And they write nothing like this for real crime. You know, real crime, hey, it's the system. It's those racist officers. It's not the actual defendant.
who did the heinous act. It's kind of pathetic. And then lastly, and then we'll go into some lighter fare. I found this, and I just think it's fucking beautiful. It's just, I knew it, but I just couldn't find any proof, and it finally showed up this week. Andy Ostroy's bio is nothing but him bragging about how Trump had to unblock him. He even lists the date. But the rest of the Trump have him blocked. And the re- but the rest of the Trumps have him blocked. Ironically, Andy has his editor blocked. Typically, or typical. No one else is typical. How quickly peeps like Andy treat military folks like heroes only after they find out they agree with them polit- politically. Especially... When they hate on Trump. Like Vinman. Don't worry, I'm getting to the point. Andy Ostroy. Devin Nunes. No uniform, no military service, no medals, no Purple Heart, no combat heroics, no courage, no honesty, no integrity, no honor, no patriotism. Vinman, he has all the above. Nunes, impeachment hearing, hashtag Trump. No patriotism. Cute. Interestingly enough, a soldier actually served with Vinman put together a thread to shed a little more light on him. And wow. So this was all in reply to this dick nozzle. Lieutenant Colonel retired Jim Hickman. From someone who actually served with Vinman and is in contact with many other soldiers who have as well, let me just say wrong on integrity, honor, and patriotism. Vinman's a partisan who made disparaging comments about Americans and I had to reprimand him for it in 2013. Speaking to those within his Apache Troop 1-2-SCR, his command was cut to the minimum for credit and just prior to deployment for combat, because according to his NCOs, he lacked the qualities you just mentioned in leadership. Also, he was the worst commander they've ever served under. Out of partisanship by foregoing his chain of command and leaking to known partisan Democrats to initiate his impeachment. And the military resolved things in a apolitical military fashion through the immediate chain of command at the lowest level possible. That he perceived the president's request as a demand is not a fact, nor should his partisan perceptions or opinion matter. Vindman's disagreement with a President Trump on foreign policy is ridiculous on its face, as POTUS sets foreign policy, not Congress, and certainly not Vindman. This was confirmed last month by witnesses in this and other news sources. This was not new information. New York Times describes decorated war hero Lieutenant Colonel Jack Jim Hickman as Florida man and fan of QAnon. The New York Times on Thursday covered U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Jim Hickman's explosive allegations against Democrat star witness Lieutenant Colonel Alexander S. Vindman by casting aspersions on Hickman. Yeah. So once again, you're a good soldier. If you hate Trump, you're a bad. And I knew just by looking at the guy and by the fact that he whistle blew... (laughs) Sorry, folks. He's a partisan. You don't do that in the military. You damn sure don't do it on the commander-in-chief. 
You just don't. So, I pray for those who got shot. That's freaking horrible. But for those who don't know, know anything, I mean, back in the 80s, I was carting around Iraqi officers doing call for fires in Fort Sill, my second duty assignment as a grunt doing live fires. I one time had to pick up an Iraqi officer who was doing his prayers on his mat, and I picked him and his mat up and put it in the vehicle facing west, and I drove down the road. Amazingly, the guy stood upright in time and started calling for fire. I don't know how he did it, but it was pretty impressive, and he knew where he was. But we had a lot of them down there. We've been training for years, Saudis, Iraqis, Omanis, that's what we do. It's part of the Cold War and the War on Terror. We train these people because we have the best military schools in the world. So this isn't the first time it's going to happen. It's not the last time it's going to happen. It's called Green on Green. And when you're talking Islamists, which Saudi Arabia had 18 of them that attacked the World Trade Center. So that's all you need to say. That sums up. Our ally, and I just did air quotes. So to our lighter fare, the first one was brought to me by Matt in Oregon. I laugh my ass off on this. This is called homophobe, and it is a perfect, really, representation of not the ending, because the ending, I won't ruin it for you. This is usually why people have problems with this LGBT crowd. It isn't that you're gay. Or that you dress like a woman. It's that you shove it in everybody's face and you lack any kind of proper conduct in public. That's why the majority could give two fucks about your plight. What's up, baby girl? Can you please turn that off? Why, you don't like my music? Is it music? Because it it sounds like a bunch of sex noises over a bass line. Oh, I get it. You don't like my music because I'm gay. You can't handle a gay man's music. No, no, no. I'm trying to work here, and that music is weirdly sexual. Oh, I see. So, my sexuality is weird. You just can't fathom a man being attracted to another man. I can fathom it. It's, can you just please listen to some other gay music like Barbara Streisand or something? Anything. Oh, I see. I see. Okay, so listening to Barbara Streisand is gay. Stereotype much? So you seen anybody lately? Yeah, I... I mean, kind of. I think because I got a good last night. Oh, it was like damn. I mean, my man was like, Bloop. like he had a baby arm holding on to an apple. Ah, uh, don't call it a baby arm. Oh, I see. So you can't handle hearing about how I'm gay. I'm sorry. You just referred to your boyfriend's penis as a baby's arm holding an apple. Well, that's what it looked like. And it's not my boyfriend, by the way. And any what's, you're homophobic. 
No, no, no. That's not homophobic, okay? You're explicitly talking about sexual things in the workplace. Fine. There's plenty of stuff that we could talk about. You know, uh, my, my penis cup, my scrotum cozies that I have been knitting recently. Oh, with these knitting needles that I have just noticed look like little skinny purple penises. Et cetera, and et cetera. Oh, my God. Can I show you a picture, and then you tell me if it's good for Facebook? Okay, I'm fairly certain you're going to show me something overtly sexual. Don't you prejudge me! Here it is. Ah, That's a close-up of an anus. Oh, no, that's not an anus. That's my anus, baby girl. That's disgusting. Oh, I see. So you don't want to see a close-up picture of my anus because you hate gay men. No! I don't want to look at a close-up picture of anyone's anus. Homophobe. Homophobe. There's a homophobe right here. Ho- <laughs> homophobe alert. Homophobe. Woo, 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 woo. Hey. Hey, baby. Ready to go to lunch? Yeah. Uh, Latrell, this is Gavin. Gavin, this is Latrell. This is my boyfriend. How you doing? I'm, I'm I'm doing very well. How how are you doing, Gavin? Gavin, great. Want to go? Yeah. Nice to meet you. No, trust me, it's not. It's not. That's the guy. Oh, oh I get it. I'm not persecuted. I'm just an ass. That is a great, great one. Thank you, Matt. That one's funny as hell. <clears throat> and a program note: I'm gonna wait till tomorrow. I'm going to record tomorrow, so give me something to do in the morning. And I have a really good show for tomorrow. Uh, news and social media nuggets. Hit a lot of gay shit and everything is racist. And got some good military and college articles. It'll be a full full podcast. It's already put together. As they say, it's in the can. I already uh, made the whole script. It's 90 pages. And uh, I did it when I did this one. And, just you know, I think this concept of kind of separating them, it, it gives you guys more content to listen to, I guess. And, and you'll get, uh, instead of Friday, I'll just do it tomorrow morning. And I'll have back-to-back podcasts. But I got to end this one on a amazing thing that happened this weekend, which, um, wow, I did not see this coming. I went to bed on... Uh, Friday night, I kind of had a stomach bug for last week. It's been going around. You know, I get a lot of shit from my wife, who uh, works at retail. So, of course, she brings the shit home. And I pick it up from her. And I never looked. It didn't start till 7.30 our time. I never looked at my phone. I shut my phone off. I did not expect the Ducks to win. Um, watching ESPN, once they lost 31 to 27 to, uh, or to 28, 31 to 28 to Arizona, it, it, I bought in that we sucked. We were a horrible fucking team. Um, and, and that's the thing about college football. Let's be honest. You know, you lose one game and your whole season's over. So when the Ducks lost to Auburn in the last seconds in game one, I kind of wrote the season off. And then we went on that nine, you know, game streak. And I was like, wow, they're not that bad. And then we lose. And I'd watched a couple of the games like the Arizona game. And then, of course, I watched the Oregon State game. And we just didn't look that good. But damn, did they come to play. And I just think, what if? 
I mean, three weeks ago, if Oregon won, they were in. They were ranked higher than Baylor and University of Oregon, or uh, Oklahoma, sorry. Um, and they were going to be in. But then it turned into, well, Utah's going to be in. But the whole time in my head, Utah had played nobody. They played USC and lost. We crushed USC. And I remember a time that Ohio State won the Big Ten, and they had two losses, and everybody on ESPN was saying, why aren't they in? We're supposed to be, are we doing the best record, the best teams? Conference champions matter. You didn't hear any of that shit after Oregon just dick slapped from start to finish. It got into one score in the third, and then they just put it away. Utah. I mean, it was insane. But before I play sound bites, I I got to sum it up with just one article, and this this is once again. If it was Washington, if it was Utah, and Utah was omitted from the college football playoff, I would still say the same thing. I'm being honest. That's not. This isn't homerism for my ducks. This is the article Yahoo Sports wrote, and it pretty much sums up the lack of coverage by ESPN and everybody else. I mean, let's be honest. When the game ended, I have never seen the Pac-12 trophy presentation. They've never aired it. They aired the SEC plus interviews. They air the Big um, Ten because um, I watched that game. And they floated over to ESPN Ocho so you can see it. They, nothing. Game was over. A quick interview with somebody and they were off. They didn't give a fuck. But this was what Yahoo Sports said. Pac-12's mediocrity on full display with Utah's lackluster showing against Oregon. Nobody wanted to go back and say Oregon had one of the better top 10 defense, top 10 offense. Had already had multiple games of 200-yard rushing from C.J. Fordell. I mean, his, his stats. I literally almost made an ass out of myself when I watched college football final And they showed the, and next we'll do the helmet stickers. And there was no duck helmet there. And I wrote a tweet to Jesse, whatever the fuck his name is, uh, to say, what the fuck? How does a guy go to his conference championship, run for 208 yards rushing on the top running defense in the country, and score three touchdowns, and not get a helmet sticker? And then they come in, and there's an Oregon helmet. So I had to go delete the fucking tweet. And I was like, oh, shit. They did do it, finally. But they skipped him in the beginning of the year. And then you have Kayvon Thibodeau, or whatever his name is. Kayvon Thibodeau? Kayvon? What, what is his fucking full name? Kayvon Thibodeau, I think. Hold on a second. I should know this. It's like it's my team. Uh... Oregon freshman D lineman pack 12 freshman of the year. No, that's not it. Pack 12 all conference honors. Thibodeau, I was right. Yeah. Kayvon Thibodeau had fucking 
what what did he have in the game? He had something like six total for Ducks. He had 2.5 sacks as a freshman. And Herbie and Fowler literally did talk about him, how fucking awesome he was. But that wasn't national news. And then to go back to my biggest complaint, which is college game day. I love the show. I always watch it for Lee Corso. I don't like Kirk Herbstreet. I think he's an Ohio State fucking homer. Talked about it this year, about how he was... He was like the fucking defense attorney for Chase for getting that money and paying it back and arguing with people on Twitter. He didn't sound like a journalist, which is what he's supposed to be. A pundit, a college football analyst. Same concept. He sounds like an Ohio State homer. He played there. But I watch it every week. And did you know, in this decade... USC has won one Pac-12 championship. And they went on to beat, in an exciting game, Penn State. Washington has won two. Stanford has won three. The Oregon Ducks have won four Pac-12 championships from 2011 to 2019. And only the mascot gets on the college game day intro for two seconds. The song doesn't talk about Oregon. It talks about Stanford and USC. But if you go back for the last 20 years... The Oregon Ducks have more Pac-12 champions and Pac-10 championships than the rest of them. But you don't hear that. They, they don't talk of it. So here's my soundbite of the highlights of the game. Kirk Herbstreet, surprised, but he covered Oregon. He'd seen the running in the offensive line, which is up for the fucking award. And Penne Sewell's up for the Outland Trophy. But once again, it's Pac-12 football. Fuck them. Here we go. Championship weekend underway. It is Vickers who makes a fair catch. And so Tyler Hunt on him. Moss has got it again. Makes a cut. Slams downhill. That is averaging more than six yards a carry. One support and also play a lot of man-to-man coverage. Hunter looking to throw on first time, well protected, zips it across the middle, and the catch is made. Jalen Dixon. We go right to the left side. Moss makes a cut. He didn't get there. Oregon's defense rises up. Johnson back in the game on the second down. And Herbert rolls and now cuts it back. And shows the speed. He's not a bad runner. He just doesn't do a lot of it. He outraced the line for a first game. He could really come after Herbert today.
the Utah defense for a touchdown. Since that second down is Finley said. They heat up the pocket. Huntley steps up, delivers downfield, and a leaping catch made. Wow, Keithy, that's a tight end who went up over first two drives. Herbert looking to throw downfield for the first time. Launches. Johnson to the left. 
ejected for a bounce right off the chest of Tony. And it's spinning, but it sidewinds through the uprights. It, 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 it's not pretty. No, not but, it's, but it's three points. So, of course, running Zach lost, too. It's another keeper. It's a block in the edge from Keefe. And the quarterback takes off. Ten. Huntley from the pocket has protection. Flips it short. And Enos spinning. That's a good effort. He's going to earn the first down inside the 25. They desperately needed someone to step down for the first time in seven tries. Huntley looking to throw in first down. Just checks it down. And has Moss open. And he'll barrel into the end zone. And the Leafs finally get the scoreboard. An impressive drive. They did it quickly because they got the good field position. He wanted to go to Keithy right here. He's going to work towards the middle of this defense, but he has a good job of coming off of him. They've got him double covered. See where he pumps to throw that? The good news is he's got his check down right there, and there's nobody there that accounts for Moss, and that's Moss. Moss is a great runner, but he can also catch and then show you what he can do with the football after he's able to get the ball out of space. 23rd catch, second touchdown. That was easy. Excellent. And the ball is stopped. Kramer wasn't ready for it. He has to dive and fall at the one yard line. A flag came out, but a miscommunication between Hanson and Herbert. Keeping him in there. And it's incomplete. He tried to get the ball to Sipkins in the slant. Thomas Graham Jr. in coverage, and the Ducks would yet it. Adele into the player. That's another tackle. And Barrows for a 24-yard. And now Don motions out. Spradell running for the corner and hit hard and spinning and fighting. And it's a first down to the 15. What a tough run for me, too. Burdell in the heavy traffic. That time not able to work free. Not pretty, but it counts. Huntley delivers, catch made, far side, Enos, and he's been a go-to guy to convert a couple of third downs and move to six constant penalty on first and 20. And give it to Moss on the end of the round. He's good. He's got a great, huge gap there. He's in the slot to the right. Huntley looking up to the left. Lost to the end zone. Watch the block here by Dallas Warmack, the right 
guard in the center, Jake Hansen. Watch him work and bury the Utah defensive line. And Hansen gets up to the linebacker, Lloyd. Watch that right guard. Watch his block. Boom. Buries him and opens that hole up. And there's the speed to see. Desperation with seven minutes to go.
Kayvon Thibodeau, the explosive pass rusher, makes a huge play on special teams. And, and Oregon's in safe punt. I mean, this is crazy. Watch him come off the edge. Nobody picks him up. The true freshman, it's 6'5", 242. You know, the ball's at about the 40-yard line. They're not, they're not in any rush at all, but nobody picks up the young freshman. And he surprises Utah, their specialist. Moss has been contained so far. First down carry, and the Ducks swing it out, but he cut back. Breaks a tackle. Still running. In the clear. Moss takes off, and he'll bolt down into Oregon territory. He is tough to get down. This play is looking bottled up. They've got him contained. Watch how he continues to fight and then locates at the last second, able to get around the safety where he picks up a block, but he cut back against Bryson Young. And again, he's known as a power back, but he's very nimble. Good effort Good there. Back there <laughs> nice block there on the safety. 42-yard run is the longest the Ducks have allowed, and now Huntley taking a shot down the seat for the end zone. It's intercepted by Breeze. The junior safety is having a monster night so far. Just the third pick Huntley has thrown all season and by far the most costly. I think he predetermined what he wanted to do with this ball. He had two posts going to the middle of the field. Breeze is here. He'll work to the middle, and you're going to see two posts. He's got to make his mind up on what he wants to do with this football. I think right away, see this guy working to the inside. Instead, he goes the the deeper route downfield, and Breeze is almost going to call it a fair catch on that. He's just sitting there in center field, but I think Huntley predetermined where he wanted to go with that ball, and all Breeze had to do was read the eyes of the quarterback and come up with a big interception. I mean, not getting downfield. Punt fake. Lost the ball downfield. Johnny Jackson's wide open, and the Ducks are stretching the lead. Remember, Julian Blackman goes out of the lineup. The leader, the quarterback, making sure everybody's in position. Everybody's got everybody aligned. Everybody's accounted for. Boy, you knew Herbert won, and he gave a little shoulder, came back to the left, looked off the safety, and then eventually made the throw where Johnson had gotten behind coverage. Take it to Habibi Likio. Herbert looking down the sea for Johnny Johnson, who's got it inside the 10. This was a thing of beauty, and you love to receive a receiver that never gives up on a ball. Watch him locate, comes back. That ball almost looks like it goes off of the back of Nurse, and he uses that as almost a backboard to help make the catch. Adjustment back. Nurse never sees the ball, but Johnson, to his credit, did. And again, Blackman, who's at center field position, not in there. Huber trying to fill in. Couldn't get there in time. And seven tries. Huntley looking to throw it first down. Just checks it down and has Moss open. And he'll barrel into the end zone. And the Utes finally dent the scoreboard. That was an impressive drive. They did it quickly until they got the good field position. He wanted to go to Keithy right here. He's going to work towards the middle of his defense. But he has a good job of coming off of him. They've got a double cover. See where he pumps to throw that? The good news is he's got his check down right there. And there's nobody there that accounts for Moss. And that's Moss. Moss is a great runner, but he can also catch and then show you what he can do with the football after he's able to get the ball out of space. After having the concussion protocol, he's in the slot to the right. Huntley looking up to the left. Lost for the end zone. Caught. Touchdown. And the Utes are fighting back. 
They got him the slot fade. See him latched up right there against Holland. Gives him a good move, but it's really the throw, the throw, Chris. The location of that ball by Huntley. Outside shoulder gives him a chance because he's lined up in the slot to work away from the defender. He's in sharp focus for Dell right up the middle. Breaks free. CJ Verdell. And then for the end zone. Can they run him down? Hey! Touchdown, Ducks! 70 yards. And Oregon closing in on Pasadena. Chris, watch the block here by Dallas Warmack, the right guard in the center, Jake Hansen. Watch him work and bury the Utah defensive line, and Hansen gets up to the linebacker. Lloyd, watch that right guard. Watch his block. Boom! Buries him and opens that hole up, and there's the speed to C.J. Verdell. Takes it all the way to the house. They'll head to, and they'll try to regroup and close out the year down in San Antonio. And there's an interception. The second tonight for Huntley, only through two all season long. Uh, he stared that one down, and Troy Dye just was able to sit in coverage, just almost waiting for him to throw. He's right here, watch him just kind of bait him, wait, wait, wait. As I said, Huntley stared down his intended target, Kiki, the whole way. Look at Dye waiting. He's got his eyes back on the quarterback, and even with that big cast on that right hand, right, right thumb. Still able to go up and make an interception. How fitting for the leader, the four-year starter at linebacker for the Ducks. Riddell breaks free, and another house call to punctuate the championship victory for Oregon. Defense that have been impenetrable against the run all season long, ripped apart tonight by the Ducks. Well, we've been talking about the, the line in the right side with Warmack. The center, Jake Hansen, has had a monster game against this physical defensive line from Utah. We should give him a game ball. But it was the blocking again of Hansen. This time it's Shane Lemieux, the veteran left guard, who's coming as making his 51st start tonight. Riddell now a 200-yard game. 208 on 18 rushes. See, see the center right here, Hanson. He'll work and push to open it. But the great block here is by Shane Lemieux. You see the center work, opens it up. But what, look at 68 working, working. Two different defenders he occupies there, including the safety, Burgess. There's a mosh pit that's broken out. They dumped the ice bucket. And Cristobal tried to show some quickness to get out of the oh, way. Now the first piece of the puzzle on championship weekend opens the door for the Big 12 champion unless Georgia can secure its spot and stay at number four or higher by knocking off LSU. Oregon going to the Rose Bowl with an emphatic and complete victory as underdogs tonight here in Santa Clara, Kirk. Thank you for watching ESPN on YouTube. For more sports and analysis, download the ESPN app and for live streaming sports and premium content, subscribe to ESPN Plus. I know it's long, but, you know, when this season started, I did a show on Ducks and Packers. I didn't think we are going to do that good. And to win the championship, don't tell my wife, I bought two championship shirts. That's right. I got one from a discount place that does it differently. And then I got the locker room shirt from the Duck Shop, and they're both becoming her. Um, I'm pretty proud of that team. I mean, just three years ago, we were four and eight. And although the offense isn't great, and we're probably going to use, lose our offensive coordinator to the Nevada job, um, 
Mario Cristobal has taken a team and made it 11-2. and two. And they lost in the last seconds against a major team that the media says, SEC is the shit, and by three points to an, um, one of the Arizona schools, which we habitually do. And granted, it was a loss. But I am one of the people that have always been for an expanded playoff. I think championships should matter. I think it should be the big five conference championships and one of the lower power five teams. That should be your six. That's how we should play. And one and two get a bye. Three plays six. Four plays five. Those winners play a semifinal, then you have your play. And that way, sorry folks, my phone's blowing up, I don't know why. Um, Literally, that makes it fair. Because you're going to have the outliers. I mean, granted, you you are doing the SEC champion, the Big Ten champion, the ACC champion, and the Big 12 champion. But it should be all the champions to get those teams that did have a slip-up. I mean, right now, if you watch that game with the Ducks, tell me they're not one of the four best teams in the country. They're better than University of Oklahoma. I I would, honestly, for the first time, if they showed up and played like they did Friday, they would beat Oklahoma. The defense is way better, and the offense is really good. They would run on Oklahoma and have more time of possession, and I think they could win that game. But because you have the one slip-up, you're done. And that goes even for Utah. Ranked number five. I mean, it's always that way. Oregon was number five. They lost by three points to Arizona and fell to 13. Alabama got their asses housed by LSU, scored at the end to make it look prettier. They fell in the top ten. They filled a five, I think. Then they got beat again by Auburn. Then they fell down to 12 or something. But SEC teams, well, you know, they get the benefit of the doubt. Oh, it's the conference is so good. Well, when you're ranked number one to start the season, you have a bad, I mean, just like, it's just like Clemson. Clemson, I do believe, is going to really challenge Ohio State. I mean, if you look at on paper, the best teams are LSU. I mean, that's an amazing team in Ohio State and Clemson. And you can make the argument all of them are number one. But I wouldn't put it past Clemson to win the whole goddamn thing. Every year they don't play anybody, but they get in there and they beat Alabama. I mean, it just happens. It's a really good team that plays to their competition. I think Oregon's problem all season was A, they played Auburn, didn't have their offense figured out, couldn't get it going, and didn't do what they did in that Big 12 game, or the uh, Pac-12 championship, run playoff option. They didn't have that all year. They wanted to protect Herbert, so he never ran. But once he got in there, it fucked up. It just fucked up Utah, because they weren't accounting for him. Had they done that all year, which is what the offense is, and which Mariota was, we're a different team. It opens up the pass plays. And when you really look at, on paper, Oregon lost its top four wide receivers and tight ends. 
They have no. They have a guy who transferred in first year. They didn't have any wide receivers. They lost them all, and they still put up great numbers. They just really did. But I still think they're one of the best teams. But they don't have that shot. Utah loses to USC by a few points, and then gets blown out by the Ducks. Do they still belong? Yeah, their defense is amazing. It's a great team, but they don't get in. They're gone. And I just don't think, when you really come down to it, we shouldn't have an expanded playoff. Six, eight teams. That's what it should be. Every other sport has it. They always make the argument, well, it's just inevitable, then you'll want 12, then you want 16. No. Make it six or eight. Make it a fucking playoff. And get that wild card. Let that wild card get in there and see what really happens. Because some teams are going to start their season. Like next year, Oregon's going to play Ohio State in Eugene. They're probably going to lose that game. And do the same thing they did this year. Have to work their way back up. Maybe win the Pac-12 championship. But they'll have that loss. And unlike their other conferences, and I say this seriously, there is more cannibalism in the Pac-12 than any other one because every team is pretty damn good. By the end of the records, they don't look that good. You see with the Bulls. Well, just four years ago, we were saying the Big Ten was over. It's just Ohio State. Michigan sucked. Penn State sucked. Fucking Michigan State sucked. And now, all of a sudden, oh, they're the best conference ever. It's the heaviest conference. I heard people actually say that on ESPN. But they need to fix the system. Because if you're playing to have one error and you're done, it automatically makes teams play powder puffs, which is my last point on this, then I'll read an article and we'll cancel we'll we'll close this freaking podcast. Coach Whittingham said something that I didn't even know, and I'm a been a Pac twelve guy that was where I was born and raised, so I've always been a Pac twelve fan. Do you know they're the only conference that plays nine conference games? I never caught it. SEC, eight. They only play eight of the 12 teams every year, and they stack the deck with powder puffs. Now, granted, for Alabama, that, that schools need that. That's how they, they float their athletic departments, if you think about it. They go play Alabama, get $600,000, $500,000, and that's how they finance the fucking rest of the year. So they need those games. But that's why when we're we're in the the nut of the schedule, and the Pac-12 teams got to figure out a way to win one more fucking game. SEC teams are playing Jim's College of the fucking Valley, and I never knew that. I never looked at the paper and went, "Oh my God, he's right." That's a huge change, and maybe the Pac-12 needs to be by the SEC because it's hard to get through. You know, like he said. I don't remember the last time a team did a full undefeated season. It was the Ducks, 12-0. and That was the last time it was done. 12-0. and They didn't lose a single game. And then they lost the national championship. I think it was to Auburn. <clears throat> and that was, you know, on last second field goal. But you, you have to somehow... Make it even. 
Lastly, if they literally would stop playing at night, I think teams would get more cred, thus they get ranked more. I mean, they don't get any respect because nobody watches their goddamn games. You start your game at 9 o'clock on the East Coast. Not a lot of people staying up till 1 in the morning to watch that game. They're just not. So nobody's seeing it. And even when you go to the shows, like, you know, I do watch College Football Finals, one of my favorite shows. They don't cover a lot of Pac-12 games. They cover the Pac-12 games that were during the day. Because that's the ones they watched. So either we need to do all our games at a 12 o'clock kickoff, which would be the 2.30 time frame in the central time zone, 3.30 on the East Coast. So people will watch your fucking game. Or you keep going like this where you just don't get any exposure. You just don't get the exposure. This is a Homer article, and it's how I'll finish it. From game-winning kicks to game-clinching fumbles, the Ducks' top moments of 2019. Spencer Webb's touchdown catch versus Auburn. Although the season-opening loss to Auburn will look as one of, if not the most, disappointing moment of the year, the game wasn't all negative. One play in particular captured the excitement of Oregon fans and at the time seemed significant, signify a turnaround in the team's outlook and culture. As the game neared the end of the first quarter, Oregon looked to extend a 7-3 lead on 2nd and 7 in Auburn territory. Justin Herbert took the snap and quickly rolled out of the pocket in an effort to avoid oncoming rushers. After surveying the field, he hurled a downfield prayer. Red shirt freshman tight end Spencer Webb leapt in the air and snagged the ball as it fell towards the end zone. While the catch was impressive, it what came next that electrified the AT&T Stadium and Duck fans around the nation. Wade came down with the ball while simultaneously stiff-arming his defender on the ground with his other arm. He then proceeded to step over the defender in an Allen Iverson-esque manner as his teammates surrounded him in a celebratory embrace. The most memorable part was just looking back at my teammates when I caught it and seeing them go crazy, Webb said. The touchdown gave Oregon a 14-3 lead, and although they didn't pull out the victory, Webb's vicious catch graced sports centers top 10 for the day. And the thing that's sad is he, he's a redshirt freshman, so he can only play a little bit, and I couldn't play him no more. No-fly zone shuts down Steve Montez. and defensive coordinator Andy Avalos first season in the helm, the Ducks' defense reached heights that the program hadn't seen in decades. Previously known for high-flying, speedy offense, Avalos and his group early season dominance forced the narrative surrounding Oregon's program to shift. Early on, the Ducks' defense hovered within the top five nationally and at times looked poised to take the mantle of nation's best. Inconsistency plagued the group, but as they entered the Pac-12 championship, their still the number 10 scoring defense in the nation. Some weeks, the unit looked utterly lost as opposing offenses like Jaden Daniels' Sun Devils torched the defense backs and had their way up front. At times, however, they unleashed unrelenting havoc upon opposing offenses. Their week 6 dismantling of Colorado, 45-3, was one of those times. The defense forced senior quarterback Steve Montez into a career-worst game, picking him off four occasions. They allowed a meager 131 through the air. Comeback against Washington and Seattle. Just minutes in the second half of Husky Stadium, Washington quarterback Jacob Eason connected with Puka Nuku for 28-14 in front of 70,000 strong, and the Ducks' entire season seemed to be hanging the balance. At that moment, ESPN win probability predictor gave the Ducks a 13% chance of winning. Then came one of the best performances of the season from running back Cyrus Habiki Liko, 
who ran for 81 yards and a crucial touchdown in the second half just before the end of the third quarter following Habiko Liko's touchdown to bring the Ducks within seven. Freshman receiver Micah Pittman caught his first career touchdown on a crucial fourth down play. He went for 36 yards down the sideline to bring Oregon within three. Then with just over five minutes remaining, Herbert's five-yard touchdown pass to Jalen Red put the Ducks on top and freshman quarterback Michael Wright made the play on the Huskies' final drive to secure the victory. I knew in the second half the team had that look in its eyes, Pittman said. Game-winning kick versus Washington State. We already covered it on the show. Ducks secured Jamar Jefferson's fumble in the Civil War, along with late in the fourth quarter the 2019 Civil War, to the surprise of many, not yet decided. Two previous final scores in the series, 69-10 in 2017 and 55-15 in 2018, we were becoming a distant memory, and the Beavers were driving a chance to tie the game with their backup quarterback. It was their backup backup, which is what gave me pause. With the ball in the hand, star running back Jamar Jefferson, Thomas Graham Jr. stepped up to make a play for the second time in many drives. And when Jefferson tried to hurdle him with the game in the line, he popped the ball out. Brady Breeze fell on it. The Ducks, despite offensive struggles throughout the game, escaped to the victory. I turned and looked and saw him try to go over to Thomas. Thomas rose up. Ball came out. Brady Breeze gave it. Ball game. That win gave the Ducks a third consecutive victory in the storage series and concluded the program's best regular season since 2014. 10-2. So to the bowl games, a quick listing of the decent ones. Uh, Let's see. Uh, I got them all here. Liberty, Georgia Southern. Uh, Boca Raton Bowl on December 21st. SMU is really enjoyable to watch. You might want to check it out against FAU. Boise State and Washington Las Vegas Bowl. That will be the coach's last game, and that's where he came from, Boise State. So I'm going to be watching that one. That's at 7.30 p.m. on ABC. Um, let's see. No, let's see. Friday, December 27th. Oklahoma State and Texas A&M at the Texas Bowl at 6.45 on ESPN. Holiday Bowl, USC versus Iowa, and Air Force versus Washington, the Cheez-It Bowl. Those are two good ones. One will be on FS1, the Holiday Bowl. Cheez-It Bowl will be on ESPN. Saturday, December 28th, Camping World World Bowl with Notre Dame and Iowa State. That's going to be interesting. Cotton Bowl at noon on ESPN, Penn State versus Memphis. I just watched the Memphis uh, Conference Championship. That is a fucking awesome team. They're fun to watch. And then, of course, the college football semifinals will be that day. The Fiesta Bowl and Peach Bowl, Ohio State versus Clemson. I kind of believe the winner of that one will have a leg up. And LSU versus Oklahoma. Um, though LSU is great, I just got a feeling they're not going to win it. Um, December 30th, Western Kentucky versus Western Michigan. I love watching Western Kentucky play. They had cool helmets, too. The Mississippi State-Louisville game will be pretty good. Music City Bowl. I'm actually thinking about going to that one. And then uh, California versus Illinois will be a good red box bowl. Be very defensive. December 31st, Florida State versus Arizona State. I think Arizona State's going to club them like a baby seal. And Utah versus Texas. Alamo Bowl at 7.30 p.m. on ESPN. That should be an interesting game. Um... I, I believe Utah is going to win it, but it'll be interesting to watch. January 1st, you might as well just get a bunch of man meat, Viking meat, summer sausage, whatever you call it, and crackers and cheese, Doritos, a couple cases of beer, 
and just hole up because that is going to be bowl day. That's going to be the best bowl game every or bowl game day every year. It'll start at 1 p.m. with the Michigan versus Alabama in the Citrus Bowl. I hope Alabama stomps a mud hole. I'm not an Alabama guy. I'm so sick of Alabama, but anytime Jim Harbaugh loses, that's a good day. Outback Bowl, Auburn and Minnesota. That is going to be entertaining as fuck. That's 1 p.m. on ESPN. My Duckies, Wisconsin at 5 p.m. in the Rose Bowl. Uh, my son, Zach, in Tennessee is going to come over. He is a Wisconsin fan. One of us is not going to be happy that night. Uh, Sugar Bowl at 8.45, Georgia versus Baylor. That is going to be a good football game. Uh, let's see, uh, Southern Miss Tulane, Louisville versus Miami. And then, of course, National Championship game will be at 8 p.m. on January 13th. And I will not stay up for that. No. Not at all. Not going to do it. It would not be prudent because it won't be over to like midnight where I live. So that's your bowl schedule. And that wraps up another episode of Flyover Politic Podcast. Please feel free to share with your family and friends. Send comments to F-O-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Foppodcast gmail.com. You can get this show on SoundCloud, Podcast Attic, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, iTunes, Blueberry, and Stitcher, and Pocket Cast. Remember, check out the Facebook page at FOP Podcast and Twitter page at FOP Tony Reed. As stated, our next podcast will be tomorrow. It's in the can. I'll still look for a few more things. So we'll have it on 12 December, Year of Our Lord 2019. Stay warm out there. It's cold as hell where I'm at. Make sure you disconnect from all your devices. Don't give the yeah, yeahs. And tune back in tomorrow for another show. As always, thanks for listening. Take care. Thank you for listening to Flyover Politic Podcast. Please check out our Facebook page at FOP Podcast and Twitter account at FOP Tony Reed. Remember, it's a short ride. Make every day count.